0: Hello, and welcome to An Evening with Nirvana. It's a podcast where I'm talking to a series of guests from the Doom community and, you know, maybe some people outside of it about level design, map creation, perhaps midis and other facets of game development as well. Today on the podcast, we're talking to rivix who's likely one of the best known mappers in the community and certainly one of the best known challenge and slaughter mappers around. He's got cacahuas spilling out of his pockets at this point. Uh, He's got wins with such words as Sunlust with Danny Babinga, Side Twenty XC Six and Twenty XC Seven, and Swim with the Whales. Recently, he released Jumpword with Grain of Salt. It's a gem collectathon that uses some insane MBF and D hack trickery to create an atmospheric, monsterless platformer that will somehow run in a number of limit removing ports. But uh, we'll get to that later. So, anyway, how are you doing today, Rubix?
1: Good. Good. How's it going?
0: Yeah, not too bad. Excited to have you on. Uh, yeah. And, you know, to get to <laughs> the very prosaic question that I always start out with, and that you've probably answered a number of times before, but uh, hmm. how did you get into Doom originally?
1: All right, So with a boring question, you're going to get a boring answer. Yeah, uh, It's pretty much like any kid in the 90s who's into video games. You're going to come into contact with Doom at one point or another, right? Uh-huh. Uh, it was basically installed on the family computer for as early as i was allowed to touch the family computer uh i know my dad was big into video games also i used to watch him play uh like marathon and things like that as a kid oh yeah Uh, so i was exposed to the game quite early uh, way before i was actually capable of playing it properly Uh, i think we've talked previously about how instead of being able to play the game we'd usually just flash through with cheats and go to doom 2 map 30 and see how high up you can get the kill percentage and
2: uh so it's
1: nonsense it. like that yeah yeah um uh, let's see that, that that's that's basically it. and then uh it was sort of floating around ambiently as one of the games i played for a while um and i got uh, pretty big into the the level editing side of it pretty quickly uh, drawing mm-hmm. out paper maps and things like that before i was actually able to play the game properly um, mm-hmm. and then eventually once i got hands on a level editor it was a uh, I guess Hellmaker sometime in the late '90s. Uh, so when things sort of went from there. But yeah, nothing nothing too unusual in terms of an origin story. it's just getting in the '90s, likes video games, plays Doom.
0: Yeah. uh Did I, I mean I know you played a lot of Halo. We've talked about Halo <laughs> before, the two of us. Did you play Marathon at all? Because that was also a Bungie game.
1: Yeah, yeah. So my my family had Mac computers because they were weird like that. Yeah. So the the game selection was uh, limited to a few decent games. Uh, Marathon included, but I mostly played through like those 1001 CD-ROM shovelware yeah. kind of things. Um yeah, I did play Marathon also, but again it was at a time where my competency was uh minimal. Uh-huh. It was I, I did revisit those uh, sometime later probably in the early 2000s and did give them a play through properly as Marathon one and two and Infinity—they're all pretty interesting games. Very uh, design philosophy, very different from Doom, uh, uh-huh. but still pretty interesting in terms of uh, sort of narrative elements that are in it.
0: Well, I think Marathon got like slept on a little bit compared to Doom in terms of FPS because it actually—I feel like it did 3D like a little bit better for memory and uh, it definitely yeah, had some it had interesting all- aspects.
1: So, one of the main reasons for that is that it was a a Mac exclusive, right? And so that was obviously going to limit its audience. But yeah, it did have some rudimentary room over room kind of uh, Uh systems to it. I think it was, I don't fully understand how the engine works, but I think it was faked in some way where you had kind of like planes that you could operate on and they could go like above or below each other in certain points. Uh, Don't quote me on that. But yeah, I think the engine did have some 3D capabilities to it that were above what Doom could do in that
0: regard yeah i do i think i remember that being the case also halo was originally going to be for mac because bungie was like basically a mac developer i think at that point
1: yeah that makes sense i think and it was apparently also they're all part be... of the same like oh sorry you go they said they're also apparently all part of the same like universe right like the story of the games is somehow the same Uh,
0: Yeah, it's tough to say whether that's like a canon thing or whether they, because they're a company that likes to put in like Easter eggs and stuff with like varying amounts of like, I don't know, like they're not all canonized, I guess, but they do sort of like have the marathon symbol around in Halo and have little Easter eggs about it. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think Halo was also going to be, it was an RTS originally for the Mac and then, and then it became a third person shooter, and then it eventually became an FPS for Xbox. So, quite a journey.
1: Well, they're probably happy with where they ended up, though,
0: right? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, a bit of a weird question, but uh, listening to the Doom radio interview in. Uh, when was that? 2013?
1: 2011? Must I think it was after I released 20XE6, but before I Swim with the Whales. so uh, yeah. late 2013, I guess, or two.
0: Yeah, 2013. Yeah. Well, you talked about how you made Newgrounds games uh, as part of oh, your like, early experience in making like challenging content for players. Uh, I was huge into Newgrounds when I was a kid. I used to use that site all the time. Uh, can you tell me a bit about these uh, Newgrounds games that you made?
1: Well, the majority of them were things uh, that never actually got posted or released anywhere. Uh-huh. It was... Spent a lot of time messing with uh, Flash and ActionScript and uh, made a bunch of sort of like my first platformer, my first space shooter kinds of games.
2: Uh
1: And uh, about at that time, I also got pretty into some of like the ROM hacking scenes. So like the the hard type NES games where they take, you know, Zelda 2, but then they make it full of oppressive and horrendous platforming. Yeah. Things like that. And I guess that was also about the time that uh, "I want to be the guy" was kind of uh, trending, uh, yeah. right? Uh, so I got, got pretty into that as well. And so a lot of my early Flash stuff was trying to recreate precision platformers in ActionScript. Uh, and I don't, yeah, I don't think any of them ever really got released. Maybe I posted some small like demos uh, or maybe like one level things here and there. Uh, but most of those are sitting on an old hard drive in the other room. And I, I don't even think browsers run Flash anymore, so I'm not even sure if you can, can even play those. I don't know how you would play them nowadays.
0: Yeah, I think there's, like, some hacky ways you can play Flash stuff now. But mm. uh, wasn't there, like, some huge um, problem with Flash, like, a way for people to get into it very easily, and they had to just remove it entirely from the internet? Yeah, yeah, it got, it got like, deprecated
1: maybe a few years ago, and now it's just no browser supported natively. But, yeah, you're right, I think there might be some... Sort of like conversion layer you can operate or you can install to have them still
0: function. Yeah. Uh, so, oh wow. the well,
1: only no. yeah, the flash stuff. I haven't thought about that
0: in years. <laughs> yeah, I heard it in the interview. And because I was like, I mean, like the animators on Newgrounds and stuff were like my heroes when I was a kid. Like, I thought what they mm-hmm. did was so cool. So I thought it was interesting that you made Newgrounds stuff. Sure. Oh,
1: yeah. I did briefly try like the animation thing as well, but it turns out it's quite a lot of work. The,
0: yeah, it's like all frame-by-frame frame stuff. and
2: Oh, yeah. And there are definitely... Yeah, there are sort of like methods and uh,
1: ways to learn it, but it's a lot more work than I thought getting into it, I guess. And that, that was sort of why the a lot of the games I had made for Flash kind of petered out as well, because you can get to a stage with a prototype where it's, you, know, you have your boxes, and the boxes move around, and they shoot other boxes. <laughs> uh, but then you actually need to start drawing... You know, assets to make it, yeah. you know, something proper, and that's not really. A, I'm, I'm not not a talented, uh, you know, visual artist in that way, so that's sort of where things stop for me most of the time.
0: I mean, I think with game design in general, you sort of very quickly realize that it's like, uh. Sort of compiled from about five hundred different talents, mm-hmm. in one. <clears throat> uh. So I know you like to get a MIDI early when you map, and like I think you've talked about how you like to listen to a MIDI, what like to get help the sort of tune oh, yeah. into the map's theme. Do you tend to like pre-make a bunch of MIDI's, uh, like preemptively before you're starting a wad, and then uh, do you build from those, or does it sort of flow more naturally?
1: Yeah, generally the the MIDI's are something that uh, enters into the process very, very early. Um, often before I even have an idea of what I would do and in terms of the levels of the themes or anything else, it's, uh, I had a folder for a while just sitting on my desktop. That was uh, labeled something to the effect of like MIDI to make maps for mm-hmm. and there would just be like hundreds of them in there. Uh, cause I'll go through all these, <laughs> so I, I'm a pretty big fan of like web 1.0 web rings. So like those, uh, like the old school personal MIDI sites and they were yeah. part of some MIDI web ring where, hey, it's John's compositions and then, you know, it's 17 MIDI files and then John's compositions links to Mary Sue's compositions <laughs> or whatever. <Yeah. laughs> and so I would go through those sites quite often, uh, download all sorts of old stuff. And and then of course there's things like VG Music or the GeoCities Archives. And yeah. anytime I come across something I thought was sort of evocative, I just throw it into... The folder there, and if I'm sort of questing for for inspiration, I'll just go through that folder, start listening to things like, ah, oh, this one, you know, would fit this kind of level, or hey, I like these two; they're kind of similar. Uh, so oftentimes, the seeds for a project could start with the MIDI before I even know what else I'm going to do. Uh, and yeah, you're right. Um, I do once it's sort of decided on a MIDI for a map. Uh, in the initial phases of putting the map together, I'll basically have the MIDI on repeat. And so by the time the map actually gets to a point of uh, you know, being playable or releasable, I completely hate all the MIDI, obviously, <laughs> because I've
2: been listening to them for yeah.
1: for hours. But I think it does, it sort of keeps you in the right headspace. It keeps you on track for uh, you know, the, the visual composition for uh, feeling like it meshes with whatever vibe is coming off the MIDI. Yeah.
2: Uh, uh-huh.
1: Yeah, so I've uh, that that is correct, I guess. Is that something I said in the, that old interview, or is that
0: just something you picked up on? I think it's something we had talked about uh previously. Okay I'm not yeah, sure. Next that into, yeah. But uh uh when did you sort of start tinkering with MIDI in general? Was that it was something that you did just for like compositional purposes outside of Doom and then you had that knowledge oh. already or? Yeah, so if-
1: Played guitar for as long as I can remember, probably 20 something years at this point. And it was initially just a tool to, you know, you come up with some melody or whatever and you want to not forget it. Uh, So you could either, you know, throw a mic on and just record it or just sequence it into MIDI. So that was the original purpose I downloaded it for, but naturally once you have a new new tool, a new toy to play with, uh, you can get into, you know, just messing around with the, the MIDI instruments and so
2: it just went
0: from there mm-hmm. uh so when i talked to tourniquet uh he talked about your collaboration for nova 2 uh anemia which uh oh, right yeah uh he said it was like a pretty formative experience for him in terms of building like his non-linear style of mapping because he talked about how like he built a part of the map and then he sent it to you and you kind of open the whole thing up and made it have like a couple of new routes and and uh to him that was like a pretty important thing in in like as a learning experience so i guess i was interested to hear like your side of uh working on that map and if you sort of remember anything specific
1: yeah i think i remember uh the specific area he's referring to even so there was a it was like this sort of underground area in the north side of the map, maybe. And then there was another sort of disconnected area to the west. And so sort of instinctually, I just figured it would make more sense to uh, connect the two areas, make it a, a bigger, more open thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think the, the process for that, I guess, uh, Tarnaget should definitely have more, more credit for the map than I do. Because uh, I think he started with the initial layout, and then uh, I think maybe I messed with the texture theme for a bit and we tossed it back and forth. And uh, I think like the the genesis of most of the rooms was on his end. And uh, most of what I did was maybe refinement or adding gameplay elements. And uh, I do recall that towards the end, he really took the lead with uh, all the detailing around the outside, like the, the big, blood ocean and all the little structures in there
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, like that that was all him um but yeah i forget how many times we had sent it back and forth it was uh, quite a few but he definitely did the, bu- the bulk of the work i think
0: yeah i think uh like i played it uh sort of in preparation i guess for when i talked to Tony K, and uh it felt very dd inspired to me, like, the combat style. <laughs> I'm not sure if you remember, like, building the encounters for it at all, but uh, Tourniquet uh, did say you sort of handled most of the monster placement if I recall correctly.
1: Yeah, I mean, what, you know what year that one was, Nova 2? Was it, like, 2014 or 2015? It was. Yeah, so I'm it was, not
0: sure, actually. I'd have to double-check.
1: If it was in that neighborhood, that was, yeah, that was the years when I was uh, pretty obsessed with Death Destiny-style uh, encounter design. And so it would check out the, uh, if it was made within that time frame. It's, uh, yeah, it was probably my doing there.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so listening to the Doom Radio interview, there was like, I feel like you had a lot of excitement about the slaughter scene at that point. You had Slaughter oh, yeah. 3 like newly on the forums at that point, And I guess you just released 20 6 and had uh, Swim with the Whales on the back burner. Uh, and then uh, I-, I feel like I think we've talked about this a little bit and, like, how Slaughter sort of felt like a a punk rock kind (laughs) of response to, like, the mainstream mapping style. Um, I was wondering, like, now that Slaughter is, like, so much more mainstream and not so much a response to anything, do you personally find it, like, generally less interesting to map for? Uh,
1: Not necessarily less interesting, but I think uh, maybe there's less quote-unquote urgency. Sure. Like, a doesn't feel like you're making something for a particular reason as as much I guess mm-hmm. or uh, yeah. So I guess to maybe elaborate on the on the point. So when I, I first became aware of the sort of slaughter scene and got involved in it was I guess just a bit after Slaughterfest 2011. And I mean, for all that set's flaws, it is quite wacky. Uh, You have, you know, Time of Death, you have GGG Mork, you have Grain of Salts, like weird, cramped, uh, copy-paste maps. Uh, It almost felt like a bit of a, uh, it's an abuse of the term, but it's almost like a little uh, outsider art scene. Like a uh, Dodd movie for for (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Uh, yeah, I guess that's an abuse of the term, but it's something analogous to that. And so it did seem like a it was also around the time it, well, it was prior to, as you said, uh, Slaughter Map sort of winning, quote unquote, mainstream acceptance on the forums and maybe mm-hmm. elsewhere, where it was something where the genre did get shat on more than it got praise. And so it did, you did have a little bit of like an underdog kind of vibe to it, where there was a scene of cool people making weird stuff and they're all really enthusiastic about it. And so when you're contributing maps to
2: that, it does feel uh, yeah, I guess the punkish is maybe, maybe an appropriate word. Uh, yeah. and yeah, so like Slaughterfest 2012 development is probably my most
1: vivid memory of that. Like the, the thread for that was quite active where, you know, someone posts a map and then you'll get, uh, three people posting demos or whatever and giving you detailed notes and, uh, like, I think for my map 30 in that project, I posted maybe like eight versions of it. Uh, and w- with each version, I would get, you know, pages of notes from Jario or someone else of, about things that could be improved or fixed or whatever. And so it felt like a like a, a bustling little scene, I guess.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, so it definitely adds to the the enthusiasm for making maps in that style for, for those types of people.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think Slotifers 2012... Because 2011 is like, it's a bit more burgeoning, like, it's definitely a lot more rough around the edges than 2012. But 2012, th- these days, obviously still looks a little bit rough around the edges in places, but uh to me, that's kind of the, uh like, I don't want to say the epitome, but it encapsulates like what I picture that looser slaughter of the time, and like oh, the people um, like Todd and and stuff.
2: In some ways, it's almost... <laughs> Yeah, and in some ways, it's almost the opposite, where uh, Slaughterfest 2012
1: is almost like the convergence of multiple slaughter styles, uh, sort of coalescing around uh, the sort of set piece sequence of gauntlets style, yep. uh, which dominates through 2012. But in 2011, it was, you could call it burgeoning, but I would say it's a bit more, I guess there's a bit more variety. Uh-oh. you had more open maps and more uh gimmick maps and right yeah. Uh, also yeah a-, a lot of that is attributable to sort of uh, padding the map count where they wanted to get to 32 so there are some maps in Slaughterfest 2011 that are quite scrappy
0: and uh... yeah and well and then <laughs> you get to 2012 and it's 35 maps i think with that because it ends with that amazing time of death map. It's, like, one of my oh, favorite yeah. slaughter maps.
1: Yeah, KSB is, like, all-time top-five slaughter map easily. It's you could be, be put off by the, the first sequence of Rocketing Imps for 40 minutes or whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: well, funnily enough, uh, I was put off the first time I played it, but then... Well, I mean, I loved the rest of the map, but, yeah, that, that pit at the be- beginning I didn't enjoy. But then when I replayed it, that that part of the beginning is actually... <laughs> It's actually quite a good build-up to the rest of the map. I don't know. I maybe I just enjoy like that kind of weird, repetitive oh, yeah. kind of gameplay a bit more these days. But um, but I actually quite yeah. liked it when I replayed it.
1: And there is, I mean, depending on your relative abilities as a player, it is non-trivial, I guess, in terms because you get like no health for the entire sequence, right? And yeah. so you got to keep you got to place rockets well to get rid of all the ends, and you have to you can need to like. Continue accruing rockets for the uh-huh. the larger batches of imps later, and you want to also avoid taking splash damage. And it's it's sort of a, a a perfect example of some of the the time of death slaughter ethos, where it's not it's not so much to have a skill, but it's the ability to execute it consistently, uh, which I guess is in line with his uh, you know the demo centric nature of how he thinks about. Uh-huh uh playing and mapping um, but yeah so in addition to that like yeah obviously the rest of the map is probably more interesting to most people but i do actually really like the opening m sequence uh and also the fact that the the midi for the map is the intermission midi which is like five seconds long <laughs> so you have this <laughs> you have this like experimental metal yeah. five second loop uh, playing repeatedly for like a 50 minute map or however long it is
0: it's a very todd thing to do really yeah it's great <laughs> I mean, you talk about demo centric and I think back then as well, with twenty twelve and twenty eleven and all that, I think the forums in general were a bit more like demo centric. Like when there were slaughter things coming out, it would be like the thread would be like littered with FDAs from from people would play the stuff and just throw a demo up kind of thing and and I think that maybe helped growing the scene a little bit, the fact that people were actually playing things with such immediacy and then and then commenting on them.
1: Well, I think that still happens now, but just the the medium has sort of changed because you go through wads and mods now and someone posts a map set there are people who frequently post like YouTube playthroughs or mm-hmm. they'll yeah. do things on on twitch or otherwise and so I think it's a I think that the the energy is still there um it's just that the the medium has changed from from demos to to commentary videos uh, whether or not the magnitude of uh, those videos, you know, corresponds to the amount of demos you might have gotten back then. I don't know, but um, I'd be hesitant to say that that's gone away.
0: Yeah, no, you're, I think you're probably right about that. Uh, so I want to talk about what's probably like your best known work. I'm talking, of course, about Bashimi dot one. Yeah, uh, why did you make Bashimi dot one? Uh, when
1: did I make that? It was like 2012. <laughs> I, th- I think uh, so. <laughs> I think I have a, a pretty low filter for
2: uh, what I'll post or what I'll release, or, uh, and I, I don't know. I, was,
1: I wasn't prepared to talk about, about <laughs> it, but... I
0: didn't think you would be, to be fair. I thought it would be a good uh, I, I, could, uh, I, think, uh, I think the map itself is just like a, it's
1: a couple square rooms, and then you hit a switch, and then it's like 5,000 <laughs> hill knights flood the room, right? I it's, think so. I think, uh, yeah. If, if I were to post something like that now, it'd probably just be viewed as a shit post, right? It wouldn't even be.
0: Considered I think a, they would, because it's you. They'd probably think you were making some kind of statement.
1: <laughs> I think. I oh no, that, that's even worse. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but I think it's not so far out of line with uh, back when I was just making kind of silly uh, single maps back then. So like. I also had one, it was called, like, Tessellations.wa, and it's, yeah, yeah. It's, just an, it's just an open room with some dumb shapes, and you go through some dumb-looking tunnels to more dumb rooms, and you fight some dumbly-placed enemies, <laughs> and then there's, like, a silly poyo poyo midi in the background. But, I don't know, so I think it's sort of just in line with that, where uh, in that phase of when I was coming back to, to Doom and mapping in the early 2010s, it was... It's just the... It's fun to open the editor and draw shapes,
0: and just
1: have a good time i guess and uh
0: yeah i mean it's i i i feel like this is a much uh more like intellectual answer that i was expecting about bushemio delwood to be honest so you know
1: well that was i'm just sort of uh stalling i guess because i don't have a real answer to explain it <laughs> other, than, other than I'm a, a big fan of g Bushemi as an actor and He's for some reason actor. he has like He's got he's got a very peculiar look to him. Uh, some of his headshots and
2: yeah,
0: well he, uh, he carries Reservoir Dogs, him and Harvey Keitel, so you know.
2: And uh, uh, I don't have a good answer for why that exists. And but everyone other than play that, it, it. was
1: I, th- I clearly thought it was it was funny, uh, and it exists because it was fun to make and. Maybe it doesn't need
0: another reason. I think that's totally fair. But, uh, I mean, the same year you came out with some lesser known wards. Uh, uh, yeah, so maybe it was, yeah, it must have been around that time because Stardate 2066 and Swim with the Whales, they came out the same year, I think, as Wood, The Titan. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so both of these wards, uh, they use, uh, really strong, unique palettes and, like, the palette here sort of drives the aesthetic which is common with your stuff uh is a new palette along with sort of midis as you talked about is that often the impetus for creating a ward or is that something that comes like you know slightly into the process
2: well uh despite being one of the most uh notable
1: features of this set i don't think it was really the primary you know essential a, a Creative element of it, really. I think the palette modifications were because around that time I was, like in 2012 and earlier, I was still using XWE for, you know, adding textures and and whatnot, and I think at some time in late 2012 I eventually discovered Slade and I was just poking around iWads and uh, just noticed that the palette was something that you could edit and just just started experimenting with it, just messing with uh, different color ranges. I mean, obviously the there are wads that change the palette that predate this by you know a long time, but it was a new thing to me. Yeah, I um, mean, so it was it was just something to poke and prod at, and so yeah, I just it was sort of just on a whim. I, I changed one of the uh, ranges. I guess it was blue in twenty. No, in twenty sixty six, I changed the green. Right.
0: Yes, uh, you changed it to blue. The blue range changes in twenty sixty seven, I think.
1: Right. 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 Um so it's just sort of on a whim just changing one of the color ranges and then seeing what happens to all the assets in the game and um uh, I think we've discussed previously that you know depending on the palette ranges you choose you know you'll have to remap half the weapon sprites or half yeah. the metal textures and but the initial yeah so that that palette just existed in like a, a test wad where I was uh, playing with palettes and seeing how it affected textures and um uh, but the the actual maps themselves grew more out of the sort of momentum I had from Slaughterfest 2012 mapping, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was also around the same time where uh, Sunder became, I guess, a more direct influence, and so the, that worked its way into the visuals. Uh, yeah. But the, the, the visuals in the WAD, uh, I mean, you could go back to it with 2022 eyes and see that the detailing is pretty scrappy in places. Some of the, the uh, texturing is questionable. Some of the detailing is minimal, and the the visuals of that set weren't to me the most important thing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it contributed to its identity, and which always helps. And uh, along with MIDI, but it really was at that point the I was just trying to refine some of the things I wanted to to see and map some of the things I wanted to play when it came to uh, smaller scale, uh, Sundurian kind of setups where you have like directional threats, you have uh, you know ledges and valleys and pillars and troughs of enemies, and uh, but but shrinking that down to a smaller scale, uh, Yeah. it was a bit before. Uh, Death Destiny influence started creeping in, and so it is mostly uh, Speed of doomish, Combat shockish, ish and Sunder-ish.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, but yeah, I would describe it mostly as carrying on the momentum of Slaughterfest 2012 kind of mapping. Um, and then the the palettes were... The palettes for 20 20s, yeah, it was secondary, um, but obviously it was something I enjoyed messing with and using to define aesthetics because it you know made a hundred other things later that also modify palettes but yeah uh, but at the time it wasn't the the most important thing to be. Hmm.
0: but for maybe other words later on you would probably like with magnolia or or something i'm assuming you would think okay i kind of want a new palette and i want to play with these ranges and and stuff and well
1: uh so yeah well yeah magnolia is a bit of a different case and that one was uh grain of salt fueled where right uh, she, she's got uh, endless projects and well maybe some of those will be released someday but uh, she also has like she makes just hundreds of pallets and she'll change you know the the blue range to this the green range to that and then she'll just load up a bunch of wads and see what they look like and uh, one of the the test wads she would use for uh, experimenting with or for seeing how pallets looked was sunlust because you could you know you could ig clev to you know, a bunch of different maps in Sunless, You know, there's going to be the blue map, the red map, the yellow map. So, yeah, yeah. so if you have a palette that changes, uh, you know, the reds to something else, you can see what they look like in game in a situation where there's lots of uh, lighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so the, I think it was so the the teal range for Magnolia was part of a grain of salt created palette for no particular purpose. She was just messing with palettes, and uh, she had sent me some screenshots of. Some Mat Twenty Seven using the the teal palette, oh, yeah. and there was something about how all of those green bricks and all the various green textures just adopted this sort of like frozen uh, kind of desolate look to them, which was really attractive. Uh, and so that was sort of the the seeds for for using that palette to
0: mm-hmm.
1: to use uh, magnolia.
0: Oh, well, yeah, I actually. I actually. When I was making the palette for Fracture Worlds, I went to map 27 of Sunless to see how it would look. Because I was like, what's a really green map? <laughs> and that was the first one uh, I thought of. That, the Magnolia palette is so good, though. Like, it's so well put together the way those ranges uh, function together. And I mean, anyone who's worked with palettes knows it's like very difficult to to change that many ranges and not completely screw everything up. So, yeah, it is impressive.
1: Well, to me, the most interesting thing about the palette isn't the uh, teals or whatever the other color is—the purplish. Uh-huh. That's the um, the consolidation of the desaturated reds and flesh tones. Yes. So I think uh, in the stock palette, the desat reds are like uh, 32 indices, and I think in Magnolia they're collapsed down to 16. Uh-huh. And I think I, like, subsampled the range and then figured out which colors were used the most in sprites or something. And then uh, remapped, like, the stock enemies just to that range uh selectively. And then, yeah, so it was, it was a bit of, a, like, hackery of messing with different different parts of it. But, uh yeah, yeah. I think it ended up turning out pretty well, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean that's definitely the tricky part of the palette. I think those ranges because they're on everything. <laughs> they're on so many things.
1: Yeah, yeah. But... Uh, yeah I guess the, there's like the, the the triage list of if you want to modify colors, you know, greens and blues are the safest, and obviously you got yeah. that cute little purple range down in the corner.
2: Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh huh.
1: Yeah. Reds and Reds and browns are modified at your own risk, and God help you if you try to mess with the yellows
0: yeah the yellows are weird uh i mean it's i think the problem is it starts with that white indice and then i don't know it's a it's a a difficult range to work with but uh i guess moving on to a bit of a different topic outside of palettes but uh with started 20 xd6 and, and a lot of your latest stuff like sunlust and magnolia uh they still get described as slaughter wads which, uh, you know, that word is obviously thrown around a lot. Yeah, that's and, fine. Uh, I think the community's concept of slaughter has ever, uh, like, is sort of ever-changing. Ha- has the, that sort of labeling ever had any impact on the kind of stuff you're making? Like, do you ever consciously try to, like, avoid it when you were making stuff later on?
2: Uh, I think I might have been more sensitive to it back then,
1: way more so than I am now right um i have a i have a recollection of releasing crumpets maps and there was some map in the set where i mean the map is like a total like 70 enemies or something yeah uh, but still someone described one of the setups as slaughtery where where there's like five demons and two revenants (laughs) and so it's like but i understand what they meant though because the the setup was a kind of typical you know you walk into an area and then there's like two directional threats that appear in a manner that resembles what you would see in a slaughter map it's just like shrunken down quite Mm -hmm. a lot and obviously the line between that and just like a bog standard you know trap is is blurry um but i did understand what they meant and it got me thinking a little bit about uh when people say slaughter it's Sort of a broad category of maps, referring to sort of different stylistic elements of how monsters are presented, how how progression is organized, and um, you could break it down into like subgenres, and maybe that's the most sensible way to do it. You could, like I think the people use the term like macro slaughter, right? Yeah, right. to describe like ocu maps and things like that. Um, so you could do similar for like slaughter light, is also a term I've heard. Yeah. Um, so I, I have no problems with the label uh, because you can always, you know, append more granularity to it uh, yeah. if you if you insist. Um, gotcha. Yeah. As to as to whether or not
2: the label impacted what I would make, I don't think so. Um, hmm.
0: it, uh, I guess sort of continuing on, I suppose, with regards to like. Uh, community commentary and stuff. Um, you revisited, like, the purple theme with 20XD7 uh, sort of quite a few years after the original came out. And you said... Uh, well, I'm not sure if you've said it publicly, but more recently you've definitely said that you somewhat, like, regretted titling it 20XD7 and, and indicating that it was a sequel when really you wanted those maps to kind of stand on their own. Uh, oh, yeah.
1: They're, they have, like... They share very little DNA with twenty xt D six in terms of the you know the philosophy for how the maps are designed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the kind of things I found interesting uh, were completely different uh, between those two sets.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, so yeah. So twenty x D seven was originally its working title was Velvet Blood Mission, which ended up being the the title for Map Four in the WAD, I think.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't recall the exact. Uh, Actually I do. So yeah, so the
1: the palette for that one actually started off first with modifying the yellows and browns slightly. And I was messing around with some Egyptian texture packs or something. Um, And so I was looking to make maps with a more sandstone brownish kind of aesthetic. And and then I had added in the sort of royal purple uh, in the blue range, which I thought complemented the the new yellows and browns quite nicely.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, but obviously, it, it ended, up, ended up sort of panning out in the reverse, where I didn't really like what I was putting together in, in that theme. And I was noticing that when you convert an entire range from one color to another color, you get a lot of textures for free. Like yeah. if you go to CC Vortex, you'll get like blue variants of you know rock red or yeah, uh, yeah. goth light or whatever. And now that you've changed that range to purple, suddenly all those textures are slightly new, it's something you can play around with. And so the, the maps ended up developing sort of in the reverse where it was meant to be something yellowish and brownish with purple as a complement. but after looking at the textures and playing around, uh, purple became the focus. And so I started making maps uh, uh, with those. Oh, and also, okay, this is coming back to me. These are things I've not thought about in, since 2015 is that the purple range uh, in 20 7 was actually floated as a candidate for replacing the blues in Sunlust. And it was something that happened ah. towards the end of development of Sunlust, where basically all the maps were done, and it was around the same time where I had to start messing with the palette, because uh, map 17 looked horrible in software graphics. It was the same time that I also started playing in software instead of OpenGL. So lots of Transitions here, uh-huh. um, but yeah. So I had in at the same time that I was messing with the flesh tones to try and make Map 17 look better in software. I was also floating the idea of, hey, what if we change up some other colors? And so I put together, yeah, that purple range, uh, and then get put it in the palette. Sent it to Danny. Uh, we looked at the the maps and. sort of concluded that it didn't really fit with the identity of the of sunlust as a whole and it makes sense right because if you're if you already developed the maps for the stock palette and then you try and phone something in at the very end yeah it's not going to be a great fit um but so it got sort of uh tossed by the wayside for a while and eventually combined with the aforementioned yellows and browns thing uh and then as sunlust was wrapping up i was working on Twenty C Seven maps and so they all just sort of came together
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, at
1: that point point.
0: and uh, I suppose with that what as well I feel like I, I remember there being like uh, a lot of people trying that what on including myself trying that what on ultraviolence who <laughs> maybe shouldn't have tried it on ultraviolence the first time uh, and obviously like it's something that's pretty commonly known among people who make like harder stuff that well, everybody's just going to play your stuff on UV anyway. Uh, And then when you released Magnolia, you uh, had that separate system where people would have to send you the Hurt Plenty playthrough to get the UV version, Uh, which you just recently uh. (laughs) sort of fully released. Uh, Yeah, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about, like, uh, dealing with people playing your stuff on Ultraviolence when maybe they shouldn't and sort of managing player expectations in that regard.
1: Well, um I think um more at fault for changing sort of what I used ultraviolence for uh-huh. um, so in in putting together pretty tight encounters uh, I I typically balance them until you know I find them in- enjoyable to go through casually or otherwise but there's still you know you you see the geometry of the space and uh, possibilities will jump into your mind of, uh, wouldn't it be uh, interesting if instead you know you couldn't use this area because there's files there instead, and and you know so you'll experiment with some harder variations of the fight,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and in playing them it's like they're conceptually interesting, but less fun than, <laughs> right. yeah, than than the other version, but I, I still want to you know, ha- have the cake and eat it too, I guess. I, w- I want to have that, that bonus mode be included somehow um, in addition to whatever the intended experience is, and in this case, the Hurt Me Plenty difficulty. And so the, the question then is, what do you do with that? Uh, do you put it in ultraviolence and then throw in lots of caveats about, hey, I really, you know, Hurt Me Plenty is how I just dis- intended for this to be played and this is sort of a bonus mode? Uh-huh. Do you put it in skill two? Like uh Slaughtermax did that, right? Or what, what project was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, Slaughtermax. Um, so do you hide it in skill two? But then that's uh then you're just sort of undermining people who actually would use the difficulty settings properly, right?
2: Yeah. Like right. if they
1: if they uh loaded up hurt me plenty and then thought it was too hard, so they go down to they not too rough and it just gets worse. Um another thing you could do is hide it in solo net. Um co-op only monsters but then that has its own can of worms where each port sort of handles uh multiplayer stuff differently like you can't pick up weapons for ammo and then respawning might break the entire map because something that you needed to wake up monsters in the closets is no longer open Uh Um, and so there really was no perfect solution um so for yeah for 20x7 i went the route of uh, you know putting lots of disclaimers in the text file and some all caps thing saying, hey, Hurt Me Plenty is the intended difficulty, whatever that means. Um, and Magnolia got a little bit uh, more obnoxious, I guess, where it just kind of removed the option entirely. But that was also because Ultra Violence just kept it, it was even the gap between Ultra Violence and Hurt Me Plenty in Magnolia was even larger than that in, in 20X7. Right. Uh, to the point where I just thought about, I don't know, just. Binning it entirely, uh, keeping it on a, a personal copy of it, uh, whatever. Because it is, I think, I'm not, not going to use the word, maybe it's like an objectively worse experience, I think, right. to play through Magnolia on Ultraviolence. It has lots of fights setups that I think are interesting in how precise they are um, or how exacting some of them are, but it's definitely not what I enjoyed the most. Um, so, yeah. It, is essentially trying to solve that problem of I have this conceptually interesting setup it would be cool if I could include it um I don't know what the best mechanism for including it is and yeah ex- experimenting with putting it in ultraviolence or excluding it entirely um, uh-huh. I do regret the the decision for Magnolia I guess because it ended up uh, sort of subsuming the the conversations about the maps themselves, I guess, yeah, where it became yeah. more of the focus, uh, I, which granted it, it was obnoxious to say, you know, instead of. I wouldn't, I didn't, jump. I didn't think of it as obnoxious. Yeah, you know, but you're, you're more sympathetic than, than the average uh, <laughs> player, I think, uh, yeah. where you got to jump through some extra hoops to get the, the bonus hard mode. And a situation that I guess I made worse by having the uh, the map thirty ones there as well, uh, which were initially meant as just like a small gesture of gratitude for jumping through the hoops yeah um, but obviously when you have uh, maps that aren't public, they now become you know the, the feeling of people missing out on something is even even higher, so we're right. gonna catch catch flack for that um, so yeah if I were to do something like that I, yeah i definitely wouldn't do something like that again and another thing i probably wouldn't do is i probably wouldn't make it publicly not any public knowledge that the map 31s even exist right uh, cause yeah because i think i put them in i listed the first five of them in the text file so i guess it yeah it, it creates the the impression that there's something to be missed out on and and then I'm being an asshole by hoarding these these maps for no particular reason. That was not the intention. Uh, yeah. To, but it was an experiment. Uh, I mean, for me,
0: I like it. Almost goes back to what I was talking about with the like the FDA thing and people sort of recording their gameplay and, and posting it in threads and stuff. To me, it felt more like just like a fun community thing where people would come in and like play the maps and you know you get to see other people playing through them or like if they recorded on twitch or you know whatever the hell and then you know uh and then like this also highly like personal thing of getting a map specifically made for you from from the wand maker is like a really cool concept i i guess like it's exclusionary technically but you know people could have submitted their hermi plenty things and gotten the uv version if they wanted to they just didn't do it so i don't know
1: uh, yeah, I see. I think it's a funny and kind of neat idea, but I do understand all the all the, all the people who, would, yeah, yeah, who would think it's obnoxious. It's because you could also think about like kind of like baiting people into into giving you demos or something, like putting a carrot on a stick and trying to coax people to play something, which also wasn't really the intention. But it obviously, it's going to be one of the ways it's perceived.
0: Uh, well they're all wrong in my opinion <laughs> yeah I, don't know.
1: I think it's fine it, they sort of think of it as a as a bit of an experiment that's, uh, Yeah, that's
0: how i i thought it was a cool fun thing uh and i guess to me also like like you said i am more sympathetic like i had obviously followed mm-hmm. your stuff being released and people playing it on uv and getting very upset that they were playing it on the difficulty they chose and that it was hard okay. uh so I don't know. I was less sympathetic to those people than I was to you, I suppose in <laughs> that situation. All right. Uh so I guess going back a bit now, because we we jumped ahead with Magnolia, but uh Swim and the Whales, uh probably one of the most cohesive ones I've played in terms of like atmosphere. I think the MIDI's are really well selected. And uh, you know, you have that map too, which is sort of quite iconic now with the with the uh that Donkey Kong Country MIDI, and it adds to this sort of watery theme that you had going on. Uh, what was it that sort of determined the general feel for those maps initially? Then uh, was that the palette, or was it the midis, or was that uh, were you still sort of in that era of uh, it was all gameplay, and then everything else came after kind of thing? Uh, I
1: think there's two different answers. So uh, it's the latter for Map Two. For map two was a pure sort of gameplay thing. Like if you look at the map structurally, it's almost identical to starting at 20XC6, map six, where it's a ring of set piece encounters that go around a center set piece encounter, uh-huh. and you can do them in either direction. And uh, yeah, so those were still, yeah. So map two was still in the same mindset as 20XC6, whereas putting together, uh, set pieces in the case of i guess the difference at that point is that they started getting a little bit more difficult and i started well yeah so i also started introducing the idea of letting you see an entire fight before it starts so you know the 242 two sectors blocking everything and that was actually part of my justification for amping the difficulty up a bit as compared to 20 6 6s Extending an olive branch to let people study a room before it starts and mm-hmm. theref- therefore you can sort of expect a bit more from them you can uh, they'll, they'll be there will be the perception that you know The first few failures will be more so their fault as opposed <laughs> to a fight starting and then they just die because they didn't know what was gonna happen Yeah uh, Yeah, so map 2 was still very much gameplay driven um, Map 3 was a bit of a different beast uh, where primarily it was still gameplay considerations, it, it still could be broadly described as you know a sequence of set piece fights. But there's mm-hmm. a bit more of a connectivity element, where like there's the the central oppressive cyber demon that bears down on like yep. every square inch of the map, and um, that was a, a skipland uh, pickup
2: uh, from right.
1: a map. And yeah, map one of that has the, the cyber demon from across the map, and you can get shot at from all, all sorts of different places. And so, I wanted to take that idea and so just run with it a bit farther. And so, I designed all the opening areas to be generally connected such that the, the cyber demon could shoot you from a bunch of different angles. And, uh, and so, the, the set pieces were organized in a, around that sort of idea. So, you had the, the central building, then the cyber demon placement, and then the fights were sort of positioned. Uh, to weave
2: through that and I guess in terms of atmosphere that was sort of up in the air
1: for a while I'm not sure how long it took for the the whole look of the set to come together I know uh, it had like a brighter sky for a while before settling on the whole uh you know black backdrop that's become uh, mm. quite I... quintessential to the genre I guess
0: I had actually, well, I hadn't wondered about that specifically, but when you look at the map in the editor, it's actually quite bright. I think it's like mostly 192. So was that due to that or, or did you do all the brightness levels after picking this guy?
1: I don't know, it's also uh, part of it. It's also uh, the UAC ultra problem where your texture set that you're using, all the textures are so dark.
2: Right, and right. So
1: going below like 192, 160, everything turns into gray or black. Sure. Uh, and so part of that was that. And and yeah, so I was on un... the sky wasn't chosen until like the, the final hour. Uh, I was experimenting with some of those blue ones from CC4 or some other things, and nothing was looking quite right. Uh, but the good old black void is, is there to save us. Yep.
0: I, I think we've talked a lot about how you can basically make any map look twice as good by just putting like a black sky or like putting it in a void yeah I
1: mean, <laughs> so. it could be bordering on cliche at this point but the, if there's one thing the doom engine does really good it's fading to darkness especially software graphics where yeah uh, um you could just make such beautiful compositions and if you want negative space it's really easy to have have regions fade off into black on the side and so you have sort of structural elements that compose the scene and then you can clearly define. You can clearly you. Know, you can take away all the all the visual elements that you don't want distracting from the central structures. And if you have like a Fulbright map, uh, you, you're you know you're always going to have that backdrop of like mountains in the background or uh-huh. uh, there's always going to be something visually there. But when when you have the blacker or something comparable, it's like a simplification of the visual scene, uh, and it allows you to make the elements that are there, you know, stand out more, make them more striking.
0: Uh, yeah. I, th- I mean, I think it, it helps also like elevating the contrast that, that the engine's really good at in terms of lighting. So, and also like, if you're using brighter palettes and stuff, it helps to have that backdrop to contrast those colors against it so that, you know, mm-hmm. they pop more and et cetera. Uh, yeah with swim it's really interesting to hear actually that that central demon was such an important part of swim of the whales because i mean obviously if you look at that map you can tell that you must have planned that demon early and then built around it because mm-hmm. of the way he can sort of see everything but yeah i think i think it is interesting for like sort of newer mappers maybe to think about uh like try thinking about combat earlier because i think generally like people tend to, when they're starting out, they'll build their map, and then they'll do combat, like, at the end. (laughs) But, like, it's interesting to hear Swim of the Worlds 3 is almost, like, structured around the sight lines of one monster kind of thing.
2: Oh, yeah, at
1: least for that portion of the map, there is all there is the the other stuff on the opposite side that just sort of, you know, sequence of set pieces that are more or less isolated. Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, that was definitely... The defining element of that that first rocky area, though.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, I think like the opener, for swim of the whales, that first map that's sort of no no uh, no monsters in it. It's just sort of setting the scene. uh Do you think? Uh, like I think that was a bit confusing to people <laughs> early on. Like people hadn't seen it quite as much. It's become a bit more of like a common trope, likely because of like a lot of your words. Uh, do you think? sometimes like deliberately slowing the player down in a game that's like fundamentally built around speed helps like the ebb and flow of a one uh,
2: slowing the player down
0: no. or like having these moments of like quiet and stuff like ebb, these bookend maps that sort of help the yeah, word, I guess I like, could have a bit more of an I should. could I could
1: describe how I was thinking about those maps i, I mean it's comparable to like You know, you throw on an album and there's going to be that 30-second track in the beginning that's like ambient noises that builds up to however the first track of the album starts, right? Uh And so I was kind of thinking about it the same way where um, something like Swim with the Whales map one or Crumpets map one, or I'm not sure if I've done it other times. But it, it lets you sort of soak in the theme of what things are going to look like before actually engaging you and asking you to do things. Um, which, yeah, it's not—it's not like a, a gameplay contribution to the set, but it, it could be, you know, that that 30-second preamble of just getting you in the right headspace for, you know, here's what you can expect from the next two things, and uh, a preview of the aesthetic and what the overall music atmosphere is going to be like. So it's more of a like a map set structural thing. I guess, yeah. which I just think I like. I like the concept of having the introduction, and and there's also yeah the yeah so like you could bookend the other end where you have the the little maps at the end, the credits maps, or the thanks for playing maps, or the the please don't go into underhalls map. Yeah, that's usually my yeah. reason. That's <laughs> yeah, so that's usually the reason. Although people have done some pretty cool things with that, where I think like the the Doomer boards projects, they usually have like
0: elaborate cre- credits and maps that are yeah pretty I fun to explore, explore like, just well, on, right? Right? the punch out one and uh is that vanguard oh yeah the vanguard yeah the punch out one. that's great yeah yeah uh so moving on to Sunlust. uh danny said uh when i spoke to him that Sunlust was sort of basically born from like a demon of the well post saying that the two of you should work together uh, and you ended up sort of dming him on doom world quoting that post uh he apparently had, like, looked through his DMs and found this stuff. Uh, what are your memories of, like, the beginnings of Sunless? Uh,
2: That
1: sounds like a, a fun origin story. I'm not sure if it's uh, completely accurate, but if he has the the DMs to prove it, maybe receipts, it is. Yeah, yeah if, because my recollection, I mean, granted, this is, like, a decade ago at this point, right? Yeah. Uh, was that I was... Big fan of the Combat Shock wads, and I was posting uh, some speed runs of Combat Shock Two uh, to the forums, and I think some of our initial, some of our initial like DMs back and forth might have been uh, related to that, and I think yeah, it, I know it was Danny who first floated the idea of just saying, like, well, it was like okay, we can work on something, and then he was like, how about a Mega Wad and It's like "Eh, okay, Uh,
2: (laughs) Um,
1: and so that was uh, like March twenty thirteen, I guess. And so we went back and forth uh, a couple times over DMs, just spitballing ideas. We might have sent a few small like prototype maps back and forth, just like experimenting with texture themes. Uh, Eventually, moved to to Skype, and then all the conversations are there. So I think that's where the DM logs might end. Uh but if the origin story was apparently a Demon of the Well post, that's, that's more funny and interesting than my <laughs> recollection, so I'm happy to go with that.
0: Well, I think I think that's what Danny said at the time, anyway. Uh, he also said that you guys were originally going to work with Moldy for it, the guy I made going down, for people who don't know. Uh, he said that originally really? he was on board to do something for it, and then I think he ended up not being able to, to do it, but maybe you don't recall. <laughs> this is...
2: I know uh, Danny was a huge fan of Moldy's The Eye,
1: and uh, that specifically that type of, like, the sector flesh detailing. You can see lots of Danny's Sunlust maps use the same uh, sort of detailing motifs. So it wouldn't surprise me if uh, they were communicating back and forth. I don't recall talking to Moldy directly about it, but again, this is a decade ago. (laughs) Yeah, um, And I haven't dug through those uh, messages since then. Um,
0: this, is our, this is my final Danny tidbit, was that he told me that the first map you built for Sunless was map 23. And he said that you messaged him <laughs> and you said, I've built map 23. And he was like, he didn't understand how you could have known it was map 23 already. But, uh, yeah, I was wondering if you remember that at all and, like, why you decided to start with that map. Uh,
2: so, so the first maps I made for the project,
1: one of them ended up in summer of 69, the sort of Sunless Rejects.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, it was the old map 6. And, like, if you look at that map... It basically looks like Stardate 20XC6 with a different coat of paint. Right. Um, and then the other one I made, which he might be referring to, or what I might have been referring to as Map 23 in that case, was uh, the map called... The final the, the map it ended up being in the set was called Black Rabbit, which I think is Map 22. Um, the first version of that was called White Rabbit, and it was snow themed, very creative. right? Um, and it was essentially, I think that was made at the same time I was making swim with the whales maps and it has the same sort of, what do you call that shape? Is it like a billet or something where it's like a circle with a little spiky thing? It's got all sorts of those shapes. Um, and it
2: was snow themed and it, it played pretty scrappily. Um, and yeah, so I think that was probably
1: what I had had built into that slot was that this, the snow textured swim with the whales kind of thing. Right. Uh, I wonder if Danny mentioned that, uh, yeah, one of the few, there was like a, going to be a snow episode in the set, but then it got tossed for looking terrible. Well, um, we,
0: we did talk about map 24 because I had played Summer of 69 and map 24 was originally snow-themed. Oh, yeah. For that one, yeah.
1: Bloomy Glacier becoming dying on Q. Um, yeah. But beyond that, here's, I guess, funny trivia. Danny had an unreleased snow map and never made it into anything. It was called Cryogenics, actually. Oh, wow. Um, there
2: you go. <laughs> it
1: was going to be, like, I don't know, somewhere in the 20s, somewhere around the, the snow map I had made. And... I still have a copy of that sitting on the on a hard drive somewhere. It was like a big it was similar to Black Rabbit, but larger scale and had some some classic dandy slaughter stuff in it. Um, mm-hmm. I think that one got got binged pretty early uh,
2: I don't recall exactly why, but I still got the file
0: yeah, I know um. I think you were for sunlust you were making your maps at that point for hurt me plenty and then doing uv after the fact uh is
1: that right i don't think that's right that's not right I think, um i think sunlust i was still well because uh so despite the fact that i'm pretty you know skill three is the intended experience nowadays uh-huh. back then up until like 2016 that wasn't sure. really the case like like, yeah. starting at 20 x 6 for example, basically doesn't have difficulty settings. I was still on, like, the... I, myself, was in, like, the, you know, the UV or bust kind of mindset. Sure. So, 20XC6 and was basically, yeah, UV only, and then there were some minor, minor changes on Hurt Me Plenty, and I don't think there was any changes at all on skill 2.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, swim with the Whales might have been a bit more dramatic between the skill settings, but it was still a... Uh, UV first kind of development, um, yeah. and then hurt plenty was designed as a nerf in the, in the standard way. Well, I know and... that the
0: cyber is a mank, I think, on me plenty, so it's quite a big <laughs> nerf. Oh, that's that's criminal. <laughs> I,
1: should
0: have, I should have kept the cyber doom, but just added more health or something, yeah. Right. Um,
1: but I think some must, uh, I remember after the WAD was released in 2015, it did get. Some people describing it as something where the difficulty settings you know it, it's a wad for everyone. if you think ultraviolence is too hard, they put just as much effort into hurt me plenty right right which is not, which is not really true uh-huh uh we We definitely started with ultraviolence as the the de facto experience and, and sort of nerfed it from there. Um, but what I can say is that we did playtest quite a lot, and we each playtested all of the settings on each other's maps. Mm-hmm. And if we thought something was was too easy or too hard, we would you know, make edits if it was our maps or make suggestions to the other person if it was their maps. So there was uh, a good bit of effort in that regard, but I don't think it was quite to the degree that some people have described the set as. Like, Sunlust is better on Ultraviolence than it is on Heartly Plenty. That's just a, a sort of simple fact that the... the Concrete ideas behind the encounters in, in many of the fights exist on ultraviolence, and some of the crucial elements are sort of removed on Hurt Me Plenty, I yeah, think. Yeah, sure. Uh, there's also some weird incidences where uh, certain fights could be slightly harder on Hurt Me Plenty, where okay. maybe it's, it's less difficult to execute, but what you need to do might be a bit more obscure. the The specific example I'm thinking of is. Uh map 17, the womb, the the second fight after you teleport over to some little area where there's a cyber demon and like barons yep. will pop up. And, uh, I think the hurt me plenty version of that, maybe it removes the cyber demon and puts in even more barons. So the fight becomes right. <laughs> it becomes less insta-gib, but now you have less space to move. So it's 100 percent more consistent than the ultra violence version but you kind of have to know what to do going into it more so yeah. than the ultra violence version where you can improvise and set up infighting. so there are some slight missteps like that where the the hurt me plenty version might actually be a bit a bit worse than the ultra violence version
0: um well cybers are always like a little bit uh scary to remove for lower difficulties because they do often make fights easier just through like infighting and clearing space for you and stuff
1: yeah, yeah, that speaks to the, that possibly being a poor idea.
0: Hmm. That is interesting, though, because I i mean, I was going to ask, like, uh, that is certainly the perception of Sunlust. I think that, you know, if uh, <laughs> if this was a Nirvana album, you know, Sunlust is your never mind, right? It's like the more, it always feels like the more accessible kind of, uh, r- like, Rubik's and Dane would, really. But uh, it is interesting to hear that, like, that wasn't necessarily your goal going into it.
1: Right. Yeah. So, will you know, Reiterate that there was effort and diligence put in to, you know, playing through the lower settings, making sure they were still fun to some degree to us. Uh-huh. Um, but it it wasn't. It was definitely not the case like it was with my later stuff where you know hurt me plenty was what I focused on the most and uh, I you know UV was added later so it it still was the standard. Uh, you know, UV was implemented first, and then we make changes to accommodate lower settings, as opposed to what I would do later, which was the inverse, but...
2: Uh,
0: mm-hmm. uh well, to a map that uh <laughs> sort of exemplifies that maybe the map wasn't supposed to be catering to more casual people, map 29, which is aptly called Go Fuck Yourself for anyone who hasn't played it, uh, maybe the best-known map in the world next to God Machine, and I don't know, maybe 25 or something with uh, probably the vials, like, sorry, the map's vial machine being one of the reasons for its notoriety, was the concept for that machine the impetus for the map, or did that come about as you were, like, building it?
1: So that, uh, the rotating vial room is one of the first things that was made for the lot, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, this was... Yeah, sometime mid-2013, I think. Um, and it was definitely the central element of the map and the rest of the map was made. That's, uh, uh, like, yeah, to to answer the question more directly, that fight existed for quite a while. I didn't necessarily know where it was going to fit in the, in the wad as a whole, but I knew it was going to go somewhere. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly special about where it wound up because if you look at how map 29 is put together it is just sort of like a room off to the side and if it was something where I was going to have that be you know a marquee billing event (laughs) I I might have constructed the map where you know that's a a, somewhere in the center and you get to see it from multiple angles before getting into it so I don't think there's it's not super special it's just a room that is pretty cool, and apparently uh, lots of other people think it's pretty cool as well.
0: Well, it's interesting that you built it uh, like fairly early in the process. Do you think that helped with the tone of the ward? Like, were you building those kinds of set pieces like as separate little entities and then helping that kind of uh, with building the maps?
1: That is more or less how I put uh, 20x6 together huh. and a few other maps from uh some lust i guess where you have your your develop you develop your fights independently and then you sort of stitch them together uh, into a layout uh, obviously not every map was designed that way the process can vary quite a bit but map 29 was sort of partially like that where i had i had that fight and then i also had uh the one on sort of the opposite side on the on the east side of the map, I guess, where there's a bunch of uh, a bunch of like pillars in the darkness, and like enemies run, and they teleport from pillar to pillar to get into the main area, which is quite a silly visual, mm-hmm. uh, but it's pretty cool looking. So I think the map might have started with those two ideas in hand, and then the rest of the layout was sort of built around them uh, to sort of flesh it out in every other direction in the north and south directions.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, uh I could think of other examples like Stardew 20 x 6 map five. That one existed purely as I had like five isolated set pieces sitting in Doom Builder and I would rotate them and try to fit them together like Legos or whatever until I got them into like a layout. And then you know you do a minimal amount of like you add a central area that's where it connects them together. So it's a rather inelegant approach to layout design but it was something i was doing around that time
0: right and and do you think there's usually like some attempt to spread what you think are going to be sort of the more unique encounters throughout a wad if you've got them developed separately
1: Uh, like are you thinking
0: know, like gonna... oh i want like one sort of Uh, very unique central encounter per map like so that there's like a big memorable moment for each map or are you just sort of like building your maps as you go and plugging them in where you can
2: Uh,
1: so when it comes to planning a map i'm definitely thinking in terms of like tent poles i guess would be a word where you have sort of central marquee elements um and usually, if there's only one of them, it's something that I'll tend to put towards the end of the map. You, you know, you want to end on a a big note, something that looks memorable, something that plays memorable. Uh-huh. Um, if you have multiple, then yes, there is an idea of sort of dispersing them, uh, you know, such that the tent gets held up, uh, where you get something. You're giving the player, you know, something interesting with enough frequency that they. Or willing to stick around until the next interesting thing comes along, right? So, when it comes to planning, I'm definitely thinking about progressing through layouts and putting interesting elements in, in those sorts of sequences. When it comes to the the practical, you know, sitting in the editor and drawing lines, um, usually the the plans have, are already in mind at that point, and it's just a mechanical exercise of of organizing all the line depths and putting things together.
0: Right. And, and like, when you were making... It seems like when you're making maps these days, you have maybe slightly different goals for your player experience. But, uh, like, oh, in yeah. that uh, Doom Radio interview, you seemed very focused on, like, player skill, and, like, you were still speedrunning at the time. Uh, I, yeah, like, what kind of challenge do you think you're trying to give players now, as opposed to, like, back then?
2: Uh what's
1: also funny is thinking about uh speed runs from back then and then comparing them to what people are doing now mm. it's absolutely insane like the, my whatever i was doing back in whatever for the combat shocks or sunders or whatever people have like beaten those times by like, like, like 30 minutes or something <laughs> while zero uh, master maybe oh yeah. uh, like even like when zool came came onto the scene and he was grinding sunder he like raised the bar pretty high and yeah, yeah, and yeah sure. zero master was another uh sort of huge uh bar raising uh in the speed running. So I think for a while this is just sort of tangential speculation. I think for a while like Doom speedrunning was sort of its own little thing. And then around the time that Zero Master came into the scene, maybe a little bit earlier, it started like the the speedrunning scene as it existed more largely on the internet was getting into, like, seeping into Doom and sort of uh, bringing in a level of discipline that the scene didn't really have before and right. being willing to to grind and experiment more and to, to play around with strategies and uh, to optimize on a level that was just way higher. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Because when... I remember speedrunning slaughter stuff back then, if you could even call it speedrunning, it was... It was like more so like an accomplishment to just get through the map saveless, mm-hmm. uh, because at that time, I mean things like Sunder they were still viewed as like monolithically difficult. Uh, it's yeah. So sure. just with the mild disclaimer when I was, uh, I don't want to say I was very skill oriented back then because the 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 bar for that is has gone far beyond you know my abilities. Right. But it was, yeah, co- it was combat centric back then. And it was uh, skill oriented in that the way I was thinking about most encounters was developing them such that there existed a consistently executable strategy, but it might require a little bit of experiment to sort of arrive at, at what movement patterns are the most consistent. And it was a process that I found very enjoyable, very entertaining was, uh, you're faced with a new room. Can you figure out a way to move through it such that you'll survive, you know, 80% of the time, 90% of the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that's what the starting of 6 was mostly developed with that sort of mindset where each individual fight, uh, I sort of play tested the heck out of everything, uh, in that wad. Where I would play the same fights over and over again until I could beat them enough times, you know, in a row, and if I couldn't, they would be adjusted. Um, it's definitely something that I got a bit more lax on uh, later, but at the same time, once you make you know a hundred encounters, you do get a better sense off the bat for how it's going to play out without testing it. and yeah, so the sure. the amount of testing you actually need to do. Is a bit lower because your first draft is much closer to the, you know, what your previous final drafts would have been, Uh so less less edits are necessary. Uh, In terms of what has changed since then, uh, I think is sometime around uh, twenty sixteen, probably mid twenty x seven development was in the the sort of allure of Death Destiny style micro encounters and exacting little setups uh, was starting to lose a bit of its luster where, uh, you know, you can keep it on life support a bit by throwing in custom enemies or something. But Mm -hmm. I was thinking, at sort of a fundamental level, I was getting kind of bored with maps that could be described. You know, something that could be reduced to, like, it's a sequence of fights. And uh, it's a sequence of fights with, with this kind of architecture. Uh, So I wanted, yeah, so exploring a bit more in terms of atmosphere and tone and just playing a map and, you know, feeling a certain way as you're playing it, uh, due to the MIDI, the architecture, uh, general atmosphere. Uh, Challenge components are still there. Uh, I I still, in recent things, I've still made fights that have, you know, strategies. Uh but the the focus I guess has shifted away from that and it's a bit more on uh some broader level things, I guess.
0: Yeah, well I I mean Magnolia definitely seems like the, the turning point. Even though like it's arguable that map three still has a lot of those same routes, but uh it does seem like exploration was sort of much more the focus with, with that one, I would say.
1: Oh yeah, so that probably started with uh, 20XC7, Map2, uh, Eastern Sun, where, yeah, so Map2 and Map4, that what so the, the first, like, seven maps were made in, like, 2015, or probably even started in 2014, I don't know. Okay. um, And I posted, like, a beta of it, and I kind of went quiet for, like, six months or seven months, however long. Yep. And then came back with those last two months when I sort of rediscovered something about mapping that was interesting to me. Um, And so I think that manifested first in Eastern Sun. It was a bit of, I guess, uh, reducing the professionalism a bit, where uh, having a a looser filter for letting silly things exist in the map or uh, Mm -hmm. off-kilter kind of things or progression that's, uh, I guess, slightly intentionally obtuse, but I still do quite a bit of signposting, so I'm not going to say, I mean... Compare it to like '90s mods. I mean, we're still—it's hard to call anything up to. Yeah. Once you play it, through like the you Odessa know, series or something, right? Uh, but yeah, so I- experimenting with more complicated layouts and progressions. Uh, probably started with twenty x e seven, but definitely hit some some flavor of Apex in Magnolia Map One. I know uh, we've talked about this before, and it's probably one of the reasons you brought up. Halo, in in one of the early questions. Yeah, it was about best content. <laughs> yeah, is that the one of the the major feelings I was trying to evoke with Magnolia Map One, and then later, much more concretely with Jump One, but that might come later, I guess. Was the idea of like boundary breaking maps where yeah uh, you know, you're climbing along some ledge, and you, the entire time there's this feeling of like, am I really supposed to be doing this? Am I am I going to break something by doing this? And
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and just building a map sort of around that idea, where it's like the, these structures exist, and there are lots of facets to the structures. There are things to climb around. There are things to poke at. Uh, lots of geometry that's awkward and stilted, and doesn't look like it's made for you know Doom Guy to run a million miles an hour around. And yeah. so it was, was trying to create something that would coax a more. It, Experimental. I'm not going to call it an adventure map because have got a, it's not an adventure map in the in the manner that people would usually associate with a right that yeah. descriptor. But it's it definitely wanted to have it kind of be like a, a playground of geometry that you could run around and uh, never be quite sure about what exactly what you're doing, what the consequences might be. Uh, yeah, but hopefully. Nesting enough uh, secret content and optional content and little you know visual rewards and things like that uh, to keep people interested in poking at, at all the things they can poke
0: at. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like you said, we've talked about this a lot because, um, like, I used to play Halo Two, and like a huge chunk of my time outside of the multiplayer was just trying to like get out of the multiplayer maps and playing the single <laughs> player campaign. There were like a lot of places where you could drive your ghost up a cliff and then suddenly you were just completely out of the map and everything was breaking and you were seeing flat trees sprites that you weren't meant to be seeing up close and like i I spent a lot of time doing that too
1: discovering like grenade jumping in halo was huge oh yeah Uh, i think my the favorite map to to wander around in was halo 2 it's the I forget what the map is called, but remember the one where you like, there's a guy in a wheelchair and you like jump on the wheelchair and punch him in the yeah, face. Del-
0: Delta Haler is the... <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, so it's like the the map where you're get going towards that structure. So it's like the big central thing in the lake and then there's like a big mountainous area around the outside.
2: Yep, yep. There
1: are, there are so many spots in that map that you can like grenade jump onto the, the mountains. And the amazing thing about that engine to me, uh, especially when I was playing the game, you know, back when it came out was... Like, you see mountains in the distance, and they're actually mountains in the distance. Like, it's 3D terrain that's, you know, the, the yeah. in-game equivalent of, like, a mile away. Mm-hmm. Like, I was, I was expecting them to be just, you know, like a, like a doom thing. Like, it's a, a backdrop of a sky or something, and eventually you're going to hit it, in a visible wall or something. But it's like, no, it just keeps going, and you can actually climb the mountain in the distance, and then, then you see, like, the entire you know, the geometry of the map. And, and the yeah. entire time you're doing this, like, there's this unease... About like the game's gonna crash at any moment. I'm gonna clip through the floor and die. It's just a feeling I I really like? The just like not knowing if what you're doing is is gonna gonna break something, and and you can break something too. And those there are lots of spots. Uh, Well, that map, yeah, that
0: map specifically because uh, you can actually. That was the map I was talking about. Is you can drive Mm -hmm. a ghost up onto the mountains, and you can actually drive through the entire lake because it's not actual yeah, water, yeah, it's, it's kind of... just like a texture or whatever on the top, and then you can just drive through the lake. But uh, if you get a checkpoint during that period, n- nothing like no enemies spawn for the rest of the map. Yeah, like so. the game just
1: like soft blocks right?
0: Yeah, basically. I think I think maybe you can fix it, but yeah, I can't remember. I I used to do that all the time, but uh, I One suppose of... um, I'll oh, start you go
1: say, another feeling I also like, which is not necessarily boundary breaking, but it's like a similar kind of feeling, is Halo One. It's one of the first missions where, like, you arrive on an island and it's like it's like a circular island surrounded on all sides by water. Silent photography, like yeah. Yeah, and you get, like, the, the warthog immediately. Uh-huh. And you can just drive out into the ocean. And, like, you just <laughs> you keep expecting there to be a wall where it's like, okay, it's only going to let me go in, like, this far. But then, you, you know, 30 seconds later, <laughs> you're still going downwards on this slope and, and the water is now, like you know 20 meters above your head and, yeah right. and the entire time there's that that feeling you get of like you know if you're like at a beach and you you go out a little bit too far into the water oh, there's always yeah. that feeling of you just be like swept away and just like consumed Oof. by the ocean
2: speaking get
1: a little bit of that like that feeling when just like driving <laughs> out into the into the ocean in that game uh again it's like a sort of unease with like are you supposed to be doing this is there going to be a consequence of doing this and
0: well, that map in particular know, so... <laughs> is, like, very iconic for the, that first game because mm-hmm. uh, it was so open-ended. I think there are a couple of different routes you could go and, like, you're just given this warthog and they, like, let you drive, which at the time for first-person shooters, like, they were all pretty linear. So that was, like, quite a an interesting oh, thing. Oh, yeah.
1: Like, it clearly guides you to, like, go forward, but you can also just ignore them and then just go backwards and then you could get, like, to the, the building that you would go towards, like, at the end of the level. Yeah. Just like do it in like complete reverse order if you wanted to.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about like uh, getting out of the map and wanting to sort of make that apparent in uh, Magnolia 1 as like part of the gameplay. But uh, like, what were the challenges in constructing geometry that would allow the player to like get that feeling that they were going somewhere unintentionally, but you had obviously intended? them to be able to get to it.
1: Well, I think you can tread that line by having it be slightly awkward to get to, and yeah. also having the mechanism by which you get to it look like it's a part of the detailing. Right. Uh, so for example, like the, the Red skull key in Magnolia 1, it involves this obnoxious, <laughs> obnoxious <laughs> ledge crawl uh, through an elastic collision nightmare of a structure. But, like, if you just look at the ledge that you're supposed to walk along, it looks like your standard, you know, stereo builder tool, you know, layer, uh, detailing. Um, And I would like to think that many people who see that uh, at first glance just assume it's detailing and then think nothing of it. Or, you know, the entire time they're, you know, they see that they can walk on the ledge and so they start walking on it. But the entire time, I hope they're still thinking, is this just
0: detailing? Am yes, I wasting my time? That is like... exactly what happened to me. I got, I <laughs> want to say, not even three quarters. I want to say I got like seven eighths of the way to the key. And then I was like, this can't be correct. And I dropped off <laughs> and I didn't find the key until like eight years later.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's perfect. That was, <laughs> that's a success as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, it was funny because I think I was like, I sent you my Hurt me Plenty playthrough of the WOD Mm -hmm. uh, to sort of get UV or whatever and um, I'm pretty sure I messaged you and I said like oh Magnolia 1 was like it's like one of my favourite things you've made and I think I might have even mentioned like getting out of uh, Nintendo 64 games and like Halo and stuff in that message Mm -hmm. because it was something that I like to do so much so it was like very interesting to hear much later on that it was actually like part of the intentionality behind behind the whole thing
1: yeah that's a great thing to hear also and I think I heard similar I watched uh, a couple streams of people going through jump wad maps and uh, Mm -hmm. it would be they would say the same thing occasionally like they jump onto like a ledge and then from that ledge they can like get to some other distant area and and then they'll actually say like am I supposed to be doing this this doesn't feel right and that's like that's like vindication
2: (laughs) that
1: <laughs> that's like the exact feeling i was trying to evoke from from the geometry and it's it's good to hear that you know it's actually what the experience was for people
0: yeah i mean i was gonna ask uh, about Jumpwood. was that uh i'm assuming this was like the natural progression from magnolia one uh that sort of exploration in Jumpwood.
1: well uh has is a a long history actually um I guess yeah. So it, it was something that was started in like twenty seventeen, um, which I guess was about the same time that Magnolia was started. Come to think, um, but the maps, as they exist in their current form, uh, you know, sort of accumulated between twenty seventeen and now. Uh, so I, I can't actually. I can uh, say the the answer to that question is no, <laughs> because when. Okay when jump wads started in 2017, uh, it was actually a much more hardcore platforming kind of thing. Uh Uh, More comparable to like the the frog and toad wads that I'd made Um, where Grain Assault had this de-hacked with the uh, the file jumping weapon. And she had made some prototypes where you jump around blocks and sort of like a tech demo. And the first thing I made uh, as a sort of a proper map that use those mechanics, was a very, very obnoxious, you know, it's it's like those, when people say, I hate Doom platforming, it's like the, the it's that, it was that in material form, where it's sequences of pillars, and they're small, and you jump between them, and uh, they're sort of textured, sort of mono-textured and blandly, and you know, it's mandatory SR50s, and you have to start falling before you jump in order to make the gaps. and yeah uh, So it originally started off as a a much more hardcore kind of thing. Um, and the the elements of exploration started uh, coming in much later, when uh, Granus all started putting you know, the little collectible gems throughout the maps. And that's when the the focus sort of shifted away entirely from being a precision platformer. Speedrunny kind of thing, and moving into a more relaxed collectathon, where you know exploration and just seeing different parts of the map was more of the rewards. So it was a gradual evolution that probably didn't really exist as it does in its released form until like 2021, maybe 2020. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But you could draw a through line from Magnolia to it if you if you
0: were desperate to, to tie the themes together. I was desperate to tie the themes together. Oh, yeah. yes. Uh, I'll jump back a little bit and then we'll. I'll go forward again to Jump jumpwood because I do have some more questions about it. But um, mm-hmm. I did want to talk about Wormwood extended universe, and I suppose Wormwood by proxy. But uh, mm-hmm. it almost feels like you had like a bit of a story developing in the background of the gameplay, uh, especially like in Map Four of that wood. Uh, I was wondering if like you. Had considered trying to create more story-driven stuff in Doom at any point, and uh, if that was a culmination of that, or if uh, you know you were hoping to sort of lead that concept to, to other things,
2: uh, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of story in Doom.
1: Um, I think it's poorly equipped for most of the kinds of stories that people would would tell via video games. Um, obviously, it's still pretty good at more abstract kinds of narratives. Uh, yeah, more more sort of tonal narratives, I guess. Um, and so Warmwood Expanded Universe Map 4. Oh, that's uh, Stab with a Sword, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the big one, I think. I believe it's
2: that's the big one, Map 4, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would. Yeah, I would. I wouldn't say that there was much of a
1: a narrative through line through the maps. the The Wormwood stuff was all very low stakes. It was, uh, you know, both grain of salt and I are big fans of like the Halloween aesthetic. We both like horror movies, things like that. Um, and so those were sort of just like a. It's a fun excuse to. Make something in Doom that's bright and orangey and green and kind of cheesy, yeah. Uh, and so, like I think for the the previous Wormwood, uh, I like call the map "Revenge of Demon House," and you know it's got the the Doom cute eyes and a little odd kind of sin mouth that you jump into, and it's so those the Wormwood sets were more just like outlets for how fun Halloween as an aesthetic is, and it was sort of an excuse to to put silly ideas into something that might not be released otherwise. Uh, yeah. In the case of Expanded Universe, it was the, you know, the little bouncy wall things yeah. that shoot projectiles around. And yeah. for one three, it was giving a showcase to those meteors that were developed for jumpbot initially that could be used for combat situations as well.
0: Right, yeah. Uh, um, well, yeah, I suppose maybe story-driven was the wrong way to put it, but uh, there's certainly, like, these you know, like the flame that you pick up and uh, the sword where you have to like take it and get rid of that barrier. And and then you have this MIDI throughout the map. I suppose it felt like very heavily atmospheric and and structured around that more than anything else, I suppose. So there's like this personal element to it.
1: Yeah, so I I think there's a distinction between having a story and then having like a universe uh, that a map exists within. And so yeah, there, there are elements of personality in the map that uh suggest uh I guess some some form of narrative and that like uh there are entities and you interact with them in some ways to change the environment and why are they there, why are you there? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and yeah, so I am thinking about most of that stuff more tonally and a little bit abstractly, I guess it's not like you know you must appease the sword god in order to gain entrance to the flame palace, like <laughs> exactly right I, i'm I'm not thinking about it on that level. I'm just thinking more like gesturally um, like uh, like a, a nice you, I want a nice intro sequence. I want a nice thematic establishment um because the the sort of flame spirit items it's like a recurring motif throughout the map where you pick up weapons by uh walking over like the the corpse of other players and the flame spirits give you the weapon from each of those and okay. so it was more of a way of like unifying those sorts of elements to try and add a bit of mystique to the map I guess add some some lived in elements, uh some characters oh, yeah. to the story quote unquote. But there's there's definitely not like a concrete story, like you're not going to get a text file about how yeah, UAC yeah, sure. sent you to this temple to, to do something. But I do think it works in, it works towards map atmosphere uh, uh-huh. to have those kinds of elements. But I'm not thinking about them. Like I don't have a, you know, there's not a, a whiteboard with all the plots, you know, written out or anything.
0: Yeah. I guess like for me, I, I mean, I've been trying to get you to play Dark Souls for, like, <laughs> two years now or I think. Yeah, one of these days. But, uh, that, like, that series is very much structured around, like, environmental storytelling as opposed to, like, you know, there aren't, like, text boxes or, like, voice acting where they're telling you what's going on in the story. Like, you find things out via item descriptions that you read and... Uh, like environmental factors that you witness, like it's all very organically told and you just kind of feel the story rather than having it like told to you. And uh yeah, I suppose like I got that kind of same feeling. Like there were points when I was playing Map Four of that ward where I would just stand still and look at the environment and listen to the MIDI. And it was like a very singular experience, I feel like, in that That's... sense. Yeah.
1: That's very kind. Yeah.
0: well Uh, and i think those like little elements like it's again like you didn't do like this huge storyline going on the background but you just have these tiny like the flames and like it's something that you don't see in doom so you take notice of it and it's just these little nice elements that do add like a like a lived in feeling to the space i think they're
1: just like splashes of i don't know bits of personality i guess uh yeah, things are just thing. I guess yeah. I guess the other term, is just like implied possibility, mm-hmm. where it's like by by placing certain items here, by placing you know, certain objects there, you can yeah it it, it inserts the question into the, into the player's mind of like uh, of why does this thing exist? Well, how did they get here? Uh, and, you know, the gears start turning a bit and uh
0: yeah well it just adds those like moments where you're not shooting a cacademon or whatever like there's something extra going on (laughs) you know
1: and i think the the story told obliquely through visuals is probably the best june can hope for i completely hate text boxes and text screens i yeah right i don't know i find I almost like cringe reading like you arrive at the UAC base and you <laughs> see that the hell spawn is corrupted, whatever. Uh, like uh, I hate that
0: shit. I uh, i mean, I absolutely fucking love Z Doom cutscenes, actually. It's like it's uh my favorite genre B movie is the Z Doom cutscene. Oh yeah, what was the Oh yeah, the
1: uh, Slaughterfest twenty twenty three was it? Right. Uh,
0: yeah, that was, that, was, that was a fun recent one. Was, yeah, uh, I don't know if that thread exists anymore if it got nuked for the final time.
1: I got like, deleted like five times in a row. I ended up grabbing it on, before the final deletion. At least.
0: You'll have to parse it, it a... somewhere for the world to
1: see. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, that one had all sorts of like cheesy Z Doom cutscenes where like the icon of sin texture gets zoomed in on and then starts taunting <laughs> you about
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's good DOOM fishing. guy at his PC or whatever, I think, at one point. That's good. I liked it. Uh, <laughs> so w- with finally crafted fetish films, uh, it sort of—I suppose to me—it felt like more of a honed version of like your Frog and Toad series, in the sense that it like had a lot more of a focus on like the puzzle elements than uh, necessarily the slaughter set pieces. Were you trying to like sort of capture the more esoteric nature of those speed maps into something more cohesive, or was this like? Something that you sat down and you're like, I want to make this kind of thing specifically.
1: Well, uh, so the reason those maps exist is because of Doom Builder X and the whole Lua scripting plugin thing, right? I think uh, around the time after, like Toad and Magnolia, is it a, a bit of a lull again of like not. Finding too many things about Doom mapping or playing uh, really holding my attention as much, uh, but the the DBX Lewis stuff was kind of a, a game changer to me. It was uh, a fun thing to mess around with, and via some of the hacky scripts and tools and things that I threw together, it provided shapes that I hadn't thought to draw draw myself, uh, you know the, the the bevel tool I have was a a, a big one for that wad,
2: uh-huh.
1: where, like, you could draw a bunch of pointy lines or different shapes and and then bevel them, and then you get this peculiar uh, shapeliness that's like, oh, I never thought to really you know draw this kind of thing before. Um, and similarly, messing around with some of the random gen stuff uh, was pretty fun, just like uh, sectors where. I think one of the arenas in like map six uh, just started off as an experiment where it would draw a sector and then it would move in a random direction and then draw a sector with a slightly different height and continue this process. It's sort of like a Brownian walk or a random walk. Uh, And then the entire arena was sort of built with that.
2: Uh
1: And so it was born mostly out of playing around with that, the scripting. And once enough of those ideas sort of existed structurally, it became, like the the identity began to form a bit more. Um, that's why I started experimenting with textures to see what the, the maps were going to look like. And it, even though it ended up with a, a variety of themes, uh, more so than the puzzle elements, uh, I was thinking more, it, it was more visually and geometrically driven where I was kind of going for this overall atmosphere of it being kind of unhinged looking, but still meticulous and precise. Like there are still, uh, you know, support textures and overweight overlays and layers that are going along with these wacky uh, shapes at different angles. Uh, and I think it was because I, I was definitely in a similar mindset. As making the the frog and toad was where a lot of those it's like a, a single map with some goofy concept or some experiment or some thing that's just funny to me uh, and so I, I I had lots of prototypes at that point where, where because like i I'll mess around with like boom stuff quite a bit where I just get a dumb idea for like uh. You know, what if a, a closet moved sectors up and down in this way after you hit a button, and then what could you do with that? Uh, and so a lot of the puzzles that ended up making it into the final wad existed sort of on their own, uh, just as this set of frog and toad esque, uh, you know, one-offs. Uh, and eventually they they sort of came together, where it's like I have the these visual ideas over here that I've been playing with. I have these puzzle ideas and boom mechanics over here that I've been playing with. It would be nice to release both of these things in some form one day. And so I just basically started marrying them, uh, piecing right. them together.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask if, uh, like, your enjoyment of the puzzles for the, for that wad does that come from, like, other games outside of it? Or, or, like, was that mostly born from messing with, like, voodoo mechanics and boom and stuff? Then,
1: uh, Definitely both. Uh, I am a fan of, of puzzle games. Uh, I think the ones I would, might have been playing at the time were maybe Baba is You or the Talos Principle Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Talos Principle, I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, but yeah, another, I was also interested in uh, Jobu Gabumaru's The Given. That was also pretty uh, inspirational to me. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of using Doom's kinetics uh, to form the basis of a puzzle. I'm not, I'm not so interested in, like, you know, you get out pen and paper and you solve some, uh, whatever, you decode some runes and then hit the right switch. Uh, like, that's not so interesting to me. But what is interesting is, you know, having sequences of raising and lowering platforms and getting platforms into the right configuration. Uh, things where, like, there's moving pieces that are tactile. Because that's one of the things that's the most fun about Like engineering problems, and boom, is that it's like a a computer where you get to see you know all the all the signals moving around physically in the in the in the shape of of voodoo dolls. Uh So you can build these machines that are really fun to to watch operate. Uh, It's like big Rube Goldberg things where a lift lowers and it lets one voodoo doll through, and then based on the condition, it does something else to another voodoo doll closet. Right. Yep like chain them together into some larger logic uh, mm-hmm. so I'd say it's a bit of both is that I, um, I do play other puzzle games but I also really like the, the tactile kinetics of, of boom and some of the things other people have done with it
0: and it, it's just fun to it's fun to
1: build boom machines
0: yeah is that sort of I mean there are a number of reasons not to have moved into other ports but is that one of the reasons you've stuck with boom this whole time do you think
1: Oh, yeah, so Boom is, it's like Turing complete technically, right? I mean, granted, you'd have to have a really slow clock speed to account for voodoo dolls moving around. Uh, But it's like theoretically, you could implement very complicated logic in Boom, and it becomes like an engineering problem of trying to solve something where like, I want these switches to interact with this puzzle element in this way. How would I implement that? And experimenting with various concepts, seeing the ways you can break it, trying to make it unbreakable. Uh, it's a very fun process to me. It's, a, it's just like a problem-solving kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I think more broadly, uh, I am, I guess, quite conservative when it comes to doom things, where I'm a believer in the, you know, limitation, shape, creativity, right. sort of thing um where like the the strict limits of what you can do with dhacked uh you know just not including some of the modern advances there i think are attractive to me in that they force you to stay focused on what the project is Uh, i could use like jumpwad as an example of something that yeah you could implement this in zdoom and you wouldn't have to change really anything about the stock game Um, but instead you know we overhauled you know, hundreds of states to to account for the various items, and it's partially because one of the things I like about hacked and limited DHACKed is you have to give to get. So the mm-hmm. more you're willing to sacrifice, the more states you have freed up, and and the more uh, you know out there mechanics you can implement. Yeah. So like in the in the case of JumpWad, it's like you sacrifice everything and you get everything. <laughs> or, <you> know, t- <laughs> yeah. Take away monsters' health and guns, and now you can reuse the co- code pointers for any any sort of purpose. A more restrained example might be Wormwood Three, where in order to implement the meteors, we needed to sacrifice two projectile code pointers, uh, just to to do with how to you know to which one was going to launch the meteor and which one was going to do the damage without causing infighting issues. And so then the decision was okay which monsters do we care about the least, or which ones can we work around? And what we ended up uh, sacrificing was the arachnotron plasma code pointer and the cacodemon fireball code pointer. And then those enemies got sort of re-implemented where the arachnotron got a recolored macubus uh, as its fireframe, and the cacodemons got helllight projectiles, and then they were recolored to make them more thematically. Uh, But what I'm getting at is that that forced the, the project to, to stay focused. You didn't just get everything in Doom plus meteors. Uh-huh. You, had to, you had to conform, you know, some other elements of the project around that idea in order to get it to work. And so uh, the limitations are, you know, what led to the uh, Arachnotron and Cacodemons being different. And those actually sort of like incidentally were a, an interesting thing to work with, to. Getting to use the the weirder arachnitrons as a, as a as a monster, you know, you could do some slightly different setups with it. Uh, uh-huh. So I think limitations can yeah keep you focused and keep a project feeling like having more of a concrete identity. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I would want is to have it feel like a you know Realm six six seven Fiesta. Where it's just, <laughs> right. it's all the Doom monsters, but now there's also all these differently colored ones that have slightly different projectiles. It's like, I'm not sure your map set really needs to have five different colors of imps in it, but I don't know.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, UDMF has a bit of a. It's kind of interesting, right? Because you, like, when the upper limit is so vast of what you can make, it's like you. It's hard to find, like, a middle ground, and you have to construct that middle ground arbitrarily almost because it's like well it gets to a point where you're adding so many new features it's like well i might as well make a new game and then yeah yeah yes where do do you put yourself i
1: guess Doom's already treading the line between you know general purpose fps engine at this point right
0: yeah Uh, yeah it seems to be
1: but yeah it's also very subjective i mean there are no doubt lots of players and mappers where you know the more the merrier when it comes to adding new mechanics and enemies. And as long as everything Mm -hmm. sort of visually fits together is good, but I don't know. I really like doom, like the game, uh, and the the mechanics therein, and the physics therein, the quirks therein. Yeah. Um, and when it comes to changing elements of that, i like them to be very focused and very deliberate. Um, And if you're going to make deviations from, like, the stock bestiary, make them, you know, have have visual cues that go along with everything that's different.
0: And have a so, reason yeah. to make them, right? Like, I, when I talked to Skillsaw, he talked about, like, um, you know, aside from whatever you think about his custom monsters, maybe some people don't like them or whatever, but, you know, he has a reason for why they exist. Like, he thinks there are holes in the bestiary and he wanted to plug them. He's not just putting... Like he's not like, well, I want a blue hell knight or whatever, you know. Like right, there's that, right, a right. fundamental core reason why he's sort of putting these things in.
1: Yeah. Uh and also those like the monsters in Valiant, for example, or ancient aliens, they are like the, the sprites are uh, if not new, you know, they're very distinct from the stock beast period. So you immediately know you're encountering something different. And mm-hmm. and you can you can acclimate to it. Uh although yeah, and, and yeah, I, I do understand with like filling holes in the beastier area, and you can design new sorts of fights when you have more toys to play with. Uh, like I'm thinking about, uh, like the was it Mayhem Purple that had like the Explodey guys and some other, oh yeah, yeah, other custom enemies. And then I'm thinking about like Zul and Mega's map from that, okay. that had some like pretty tightly designed slaughter style fights that incorporated those monsters in very deliberate ways, and. Uh, you'll find the same thing throughout like valiant as well
2: um
0: yeah a so lot of it is voice... like intentionality intentionality yeah. like thought uh, as long as those things are there a lot of the time you know you can make whatever work um, yeah, just,
2: um
1: if you're going to change something i like it to be visually different as well i guess
0: sure yeah i it seems like for you like what you like to do in doom is push boundaries and like it it feels like originally a lot of that was to do with like difficulty back when you were more focused around that kind of stricter gameplay and stuff and and these days obviously uh it's in a lot of different ways do you think like to get excited about a new project it has to like push the boundaries a little bit for you to be interested
2: uh no
0: uh-huh. Is that I think I said like earlier when you're talking about like one
1: like that sort of energy <laughs> where yeah. I do have a fairly low filter for uh yeah, if I if I make a map and it, it plays, it's completable, well, I'll post it. Uh even if it's uh if there's nothing particularly special about it. Uh, sure. And
0: I like, think is that just, applies to your major releases though as well. Because they are at least yeah, I mean, mostly I, distinct, I, guess, <laughs> I would say.
1: Yeah, you could be you could cruelly separate everything I've released into like major releases and minor releases, I guess.
0: Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah.
1: And so maybe you could say that the the way I think about either could be slightly different, but uh I don't think every major release necessarily had new things in it really, but I guess to an extent, you're probably that assessment's probably correct. But that's also, I guess, it makes sense that if you're going to spend time with a, a larger project that takes, you know, hundreds of hours to put together, you're you're going to want to have something about it. It's like it gives you like like urgency. Is what I used earlier, where it's like there's something in it that you think is interesting and other people need to see or like, hey, I've come up with something cool. I want to show people this cool thing. Uh, and that's more likely to be the case if you've done something like come up with a new, whatever, de-hacked enemy or you come up with some new boom mechanic or something. Um, right, yeah. but it's not not necessarily always the case. It could just be some maps that you think look really cool and are very striking and you want to get them out for that reason. But,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I don't know, so maybe a mixed answer because I, I do also make lots of stuff that's just made because it's fun to draw maps. like sure yeah many many of my i guess my minor releases the illustrious stuff dot wad <laughs> <laughs> those were just like i open up doom builder and it's fun to scribble around and draw some lines and then you do some texturing and then hey look it's a map
2: uh, might yeah. as well post it uh, yeah. right. i think you will probably
0: hear like a similar answer from a lot of people to be fair uh i think Uh, during a lot of our, like, Zandronum (laughs) runs through wads and stuff, I think we talk a lot about how, like, some wads are just kind of ruined by people's, like, need to put monsters in them, where, like, maybe the gimmick for the wad doesn't necessarily need monsters to work in the first place. Uh, when you, I guess, jump wad was sort of necessarily monsterless because you cannibalize so many things in order to make it function properly, but... Was it like kind of freeing to build a wad that had no monsters in it and was like uh, entirely designed around movement and stuff?
2: Uh, freeing is maybe not the the right word. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: it is it shifts your priorities quite a lot. Uh, if right. the player can no longer die and they're never worried about losing, you need to give them other reasons to. To keep poking around the levels, you need to give them some carrots on sticks to chase, and uh, they can't just be weapons, keys or items or or fun fights.
2: you gotta think more about uh, a like mixing up visuals, having having new
1: areas that require them to move in different ways, and of course the the, the bait of the gem that you put everywhere because people can't resist numbers on screens going up.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, so it, I think it shifts shifted the design priorities, but it's not really freeing because you still have the same uh the same concerns over how you're going to hold someone's attention in this. like is this are there enough movement- related concepts here to keep this interesting? Uh, like JumpBot had quite a lot of visual ideas thrown into it. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, basically, yeah. every every cool idea I came up with over the past, like, five years shows up in that one. I, I, I spared no expense. <laughs> uh, like, there's that big, silly, like, dodecahedron thing in one of the maps. There's, like, these rotating mid-text gems and uh, right, yeah. all, sorts, all sorts of other stuff. And a lot of that was in part because there isn't uh, the usual Doom gameplay element present. So, like, you really bring better bring your A game when it comes to... Uh, visuals and detailing and atmosphere and tonality and uh, if you want to be something that's going to hold people's attention Uh, so definitely not freeing it just gives you a different set of
0: constraints to work with i think or a different set of concerns sure I, i know like during testing there were a couple of things like in terms of Like, I I don't know, I remember I was playing a map, and there was, like, a vial that I could just get, like, a pixel of, and he bounced me to a gem, and that was kind of unintentional. Uh, And then, you know, I'm sure there are a number of things where people found ways to get gems unintentionally, and and I know that you really enjoyed, uh, like, people working out their own ways to play the ward. What kind of rules did you have for yourself in terms of, like, what would stay in and what wouldn't, like, what you would allow and Uh, what, what you wouldn't allow?
1: So. A lot of the, I guess, quote unquote, skips, but there's really no notion of skipping. Uh-huh. Um, a lot a lot of the things like that, many of them were unknown to me until I saw someone else do it in a stream or a demo or in testing or otherwise. Uh-huh. And one way to arrive at that situation was to make things essentially as open and interconnected as possible and not getting upset if there's a way to circumvent something that you thought was cool. uh, just So resisting the impulse to force people to to go down one specific area. And uh, also adding lots of height variation in nearby spaces. uh, Because it's with those weird jump mechanics where you can fall and then start jumping, and you can jump multiple times while falling. Yeah, you can cover some pretty crazy distances. And uh, yeah. there are lots of, there are gaps that like I knew about, but uh, it didn't really matter. Uh, there were many that I didn't know about, and it's very interesting, some of which, uh, like there was like a map one thing where you could just like jump into the exit immediately. Uh, <laughs> and that was just like like a consequence of uh, just doing the, like. Map 1 for example was designed all the jumps the gameplay was done like 100% and the map existed as like an untextured you know crate thing and then all the detailing starts getting flushed out around it so different sectors of different heights to you know emulate buildings or structures or balconies or overhangs or whatever and through the process of adding that detailing it turns out that you know when you make more windows that people can jump through windows and, uh, so a lot of that was unintentional, but it's also, uh, very much welcome. One of the, another way to do it is to simply not spend so much time on, on the map and thinking about it. Mm. Uh, so like map two of that wad was jump city. That one got put together in like the 11th hour of uh, like, you know, just the week before the Y got posted and it were lots of barks were thrown together so quickly and there are lots of jump sequences that are close enough to each other such that if you get a good enough vantage point you can you know just skip ahead to a, the part of some adjacent area mm-hmm. and that was like that it's like if you could call it an oversight but it's almost beneficial that these oversights exist because the stakes of the set are so low you can't you can't die, and as long as you can't soft lock yourself, it's fine. Uh, like it doesn't it doesn't matter if you do a sequence of jumps slightly differently because does the intended experience of jumping on this platform and that platform is that really so much more exciting than doing yeah. it some other way? Uh, so like the the losses are quite minimal, and the I think it, yeah, it pays dividends in the feeling we, we were talking about earlier, uh, like boundary breaking of. Oh, I didn't think I was supposed to be able to get that this early. And yeah, you weren't, but it's great that you can. And it's great that when you did it, that feeling, you know came up it, it, it could be exciting to do. It. And so making things open and interconnected, lots of nearby height variation, um only removing things if it results in soft locks. and yeah, I guess just not worrying so much and not spending so much
0: time on it yeah i think i mean i think jump ward definitely captures the feeling the best of should i be doing this because i do feel like i did a like you were saying you can get a lot of distance in that ward with the jump yeah, yeah. and i would <laughs> do stuff like you know sr 50 drop jump and cover like half of a gigantic area and, yeah, and grab really some cool. gem <laughs> and then i was like i don't know if that was intentional but i got here and like realistically like you said unless you soft luck in that ward if the player manages to get to the exit early, really all they're doing is, like, robbing themselves of gameplay. Like, it doesn't necessarily... Which they are in Doom as well, technically, but it doesn't have the same... There's no percentage thing at the at the end of the level yeah. for, like, whatever. You don't know, get a... Like, the speed running time doesn't matter in any sense. So, like, if you're not collecting the gems, like, what are you playing the ward for anyway, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Also, I do really... Like the philosophy of map design, where you can show the player the exit, and depending on their personality and how much they're enjoying the map, maybe they'll take it immediately. Maybe they won't. Uh, I like when that option is there uh, earlier into the map, so you don't have to cover you know 100% of the content before being allowed to leave, which gives people a little bit more agency in deciding. You know, am I not digging this map? Okay, let's just move on to the next one, or you know, I really want to find the last 17 gems or whatever, and then they'll spend four hours on the auto map until they find everything.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, um, yeah, I definitely spent a long time 100%ing the maps, yeah. especially with some of the more, like, esoteric stuff that you put in. Uh, and I guess, like, a lot of the secret elements, well, yeah, I suppose there's still secret elements, like, certain there's things a like... There's like, total of
1: one... There's one secret sector in the entire world. <laughs>
0: Well, I suppose I'm talking more about you know uh, specifically the map where you have to get the different ranks in order to unlock uh, yep, certain yep, areas yep. of the map, things like and
1: that. A lot, yeah.
0: Yeah, and um, yeah. I guess like to me, like when I design stuff and I and I want to put a secret in, my concept for secrets is usually more like I don't. It's not very interesting when you just grab like a soul sphere or whatever, and it's like cool, I found some health. It's much more interesting to like give the player more gameplay, like that's a much more interesting reward to my mind and and i think like jump one kind of takes that to like the next level with these little tasks you can complete in certain in certain levels
1: yeah you think that uh the the opposite sentiment also exists you could read posts about people who get pissed off when there's monsters and secrets yeah, yeah. well uh, you get all all sorts of takes uh but yeah so one of, one of the things thinking about how to encourage exploration and in, in, in maps like that, is how do you how do you keep people poking? How do you keep them interested in poking?
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and so, you know, one of the ways could be to reward the player, not necessarily with anything tangible, because there's not really too many tangible things you can reward them with, but give them just like cool vistas of areas once they get up to some some part, or uh-huh. give them uh some new visuals area uh, a new type of visual that they haven't seen before uh in the context of the last jump wide map there was the whole like music puzzle thing which dispersed the clues throughout the the map and uh so that that was sort of a bit more of a of a tangible thing uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah you, you got to find something else to give them can't just be a soul sphere in a closet
0: yeah i mean i i suppose like I suppose, like, obviously my stuff that I'm making is still a lot more combat-centric, and, uh, I think, like, when you come from that slaughter kind of background of building maps, that genre in general, like, uh, I feel like a lot of the reward in that genre is the completion of a difficult fight or whatever, you know? It's not necessarily you beat the fight and then you get rewarded with, like, something else. So, I think it's kind of a natural progression- for me in terms of like, well, how do you reward a player in a secret kind of thing, yeah.
1: yeah I think it's been, yeah, it's pretty ubiquitous in slaughter maps now to, to hide secret fights. And sometimes the secret fights will be like the most obnoxious fights. Yeah. And I think that's, it's a similar problem solving as to, you know, making the true ultraviolence being more convoluted to get to. It's like, you have some hard elements in your map but you acknowledge that they're either too hard or not as fun as the mainline content. So you sideline them somehow and whether you're putting them, stashing them in secrets or whether you're doing something weird with difficulty settings, it's addressing sort of the same underlying issue. I think Uh, Uh there is also, I guess, uh, like speedrunner bait kind of things where you have a map that's maybe difficult, but more or less doable. And then, you put some extremely hard stuff in a secret fight somewhere just to force people to to route through it or whatever.
0: Well, yeah. Magnolia 3, you put specific secrets uh, that were, like, in particular... Like, they required vile jumps or, or whatever. Uh, to yeah, yeah. And just, stuff
1: like that. yeah there's, there's one that requires a glide, another one that requires a void glide, and then a couple other obnoxious ones. <laughs> uh, those were mostly... Like post facto, where I'm just wandering around the map, and I notice, oh hey, this was 32 wide. Uh, I should put something back there. Or mm-hmm. yeah, in the case of the boy glide one, it was just noticing there was a little area of the map, little area of the map, in like the north corner that I didn't have any use for. There was just nothing there, and I was just thinking, wouldn't it be funny if you could just clip through these bars and go get something out there? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but those aren't those aren't difficult per se. It's just because there's no like combat challenge associated with it, and they do reward you purely with items. Uh-huh. Uh, so those are pretty classic secrets, I guess. Still, even if they require a
0: little bit of tech to get to. On some of the secrets, just a barrel there. I thought that was the case. Oh
1: yeah, I think that's Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, map one has a couple of those. I think it might be one or two in map three. Um. Uh-huh. Originally, yeah, it was, it's just like a, a cheeky thing where it's like, it's a it's a secret and it, because it's tagged secret, you know, anyone with UV Max proclivities is forced to go back here somehow. And the barrel is just like
2: a, I don't know, it's a, it's a mocking
0: barrel. It's, <laughs> a... <laughs> it's laughing at you. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The looking. Uh, I think i mean obviously midi is like a big important part of your um your wads in general uh jump water and wormwood you and magnolia have like uh some incredibly uh sort of atmospheric midis and uh what what i think's really sort of strong about your midi style is that it sort of see like it sits in the background very nicely it doesn't bleed into the foreground and become distracting to the map do you have like any rules when you're working with MIDI for Doom to sort of make sure that they don't uh, come to the foreground and, like, interrupt the feel of the map in any way?
1: Oh, yeah, very much. So uh, the first, I guess, decade or so of of midis I made were more, I guess, foreground music is a a term I could use where Uh there's some distracting elements to it where there's melodic, arcs that command your attention and, and also things that are very strong uh, melodically tend to loop poorly where it gets like really irritating to listen to something yeah. you know pointy and fast for like the 20th time yeah. uh, so there are definitely some middies I mean I, I do a bit of both I'll, I'll write music that's just for the sake of music it's, maybe it's fun to play on guitar maybe it's just sounds cool but there is also a subset of midis I'll make that have uh, sort of doom aspirations baked into them. Right. Where, if you know, if it's a, a bit of an understated thing where some chords are moving in the background, and I get the impression that it wouldn't be too annoying to listen to for you know ten twenty minutes, and then I'll, I'll start gearing it more towards that uh, to keep some melodic elements out of the way. Uh, I'm not sure if there's anything, like concretely, I can say about it. It's more of just like a when I hear it, I know it that like this is going to be annoying to listen to, or oh, yeah. I think I could listen to this for a while. Um, and I also will make edits, like if um, I make a MIDI for a map, and then I'm listening to the MIDI while mapping, and then gradually something about it starts grating on me, and I'll go back and change some things in the composition to to rework it or. The most common problem um, is having something that's like a really cool song, but it's only like two minutes long, yeah. and it starts to get irritating to listen to after a few times. And so the the idea of extending maybe to add some more sections. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Mm. Sometimes it's like all the ideas are there, and I can't, you know, I can't concoct any new variations. Right. Also, there's like some pretty badass thunder happening outside. I'm not sure if that's picking up on the mic, but
0: no, it's not uh, miraculously.
1: Wow, impressive. Uh, but yeah, another example is I think in fractured worlds I'd extended maybe one or two of the the midis. One of them was like is it DFD five underscore or something?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think so.
1: And that one was a challenge because I think the original midi was only like a minute thirty, and it was. Pretty stark, it was one of those ones I wrote in like the the Italo doom era where I was making kind of silly electronic things with like the synth brass instrument, which is just glorious
2: uh-huh. um,
1: yeah I did make some yeah some attempts at padding it out. I think it, it got out to maybe like two minutes and thirty three minutes um, yeah. but even if it if that is an improvement, I still think it doesn't loop that great because the maps all, also all your maps are. Really long, so that doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, like playing through that the map that MIDI was in, uh, well, especially because if you're learning fights and you're dying and save reloading, you hear the MIDI a lot more than the actual you know runtime. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at the end, and so there are some elements of like that MIDI, for example, that I guess I wish I made a bit more understated, uh, because hearing it loop for the tenth or twentieth time does start getting on my nerves, and it probably <laughs> gets on some players' nerves as well
0: yeah i just liked that uh i did like that um i'm not sure if you'd call it a riff but sort of the main element of it so much that that i really did it's like a
1: it's a cool like tappy guitar riff where it's like a some open chord tuning but then i changed the instruments to be like the synth brass thing so it ends up being this like silly uh i don't know like new wave sounding kind
0: of thing it's the yeah map four i'm pretty sure you're talking yeah, about the uh, one with all the bends, I'm assuming the very bendy. Yeah, the,
2: the bendy end, section
1: yeah. at
0: the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you know, a great MIDI. Uh, yeah, you've done you've done quite a few extensions actually. Uh, I'm pretty sure entropy. You had to extend that because that map was just too gigantic. And uh, uh, even
1: that, yeah, even that one. Like, I, I guess I wish I could have done more to it, but hmm. I, I do like the the extra stuff added at the end. It's very uh. Some of the chord voicings were ripped straight out of a Schoenberg quartet. Um, but yeah, even, even still, I think it got out to like three minutes 30. But that map is like, you know, <laughs> not, people are going to know now. <laughs> yeah, That's because it's exceedingly difficult. Uh, yeah. yeah so, I guess like I we'll...
0: Oh, sorry, can Yeah, you can go ahead. I was just, yeah, I suppose I was wondering what you're like. When you're trying to pad a MIDI out or like what are you looking to do? Like what sort of little sections are you trying to add to pad it?
1: Well, the, the laziest option is usually to copy, make a few more repetitions of whatever the underlying chords are, and then strip out melodic elements and then have sort of sparse sections. So you have like the, the main melody that's happening over some chords of percussion, and then maybe try adding in a few repeats of just the chords, maybe you make some modifications, but rip the melody out just to put a bit more like breathing room between elements of the song that you know, command a bit more attention. Uh-huh. Uh, but it is, I mean, I think this is a problem a lot of people have uh, because look at something like Sunder, where each map is a multi-hour you know, ordeal. And basically every MIDI is a low droning diminished thing yeah uh, but it's also like obviously he, uh, Gazebo has some atmospheric angles where he, you know, he wants the maps to, to feel a certain way and music is a part of it but it's also a pragmatic reality that if you have a map that's hours long basically the only music that doesn't get annoying is something that's like a low droning thing that you can basically tune out yeah that uh,
0: sits in the background yeah
1: so like Magnolia Map 3's MIDI was written with that in mind, where it's basically a, it's a, it's a low-pitched droning diminished thing, uh, and it's rather slow. Mm-hmm. And it has some ebbs and flows where like percussion comes in. Uh, but there's also a lot of sparse sections where, like I said, to get a bit more breathing room between those. Um, so if you're making a MIDI for something that's going to be a very long map, I mean, shoot for five minutes, four or five minutes, uh-huh. and have have parts of it that are ignorable, not in like a muzak sense, but uh, <laughs> uh. Uh, but you know what I mean. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting there because that that Wormwood Map Four MIDI, well Wormwood EU Map Four MIDI that I talked about earlier, that does have a lot of interesting melodic elements and. It almost does draw you out of the map, but not not out of the map really, but you are drawn to the MIDI more than I would say in other uh like other works of yours, I think
1: yeah, for that one uh I know the the melodies were rather busy in the original MIDI, the one from crumpets uh-huh. uh, so the way I sort of tried to round the edges off for a larger map um was to change the instrumentation so that the, the instruments themselves were softer. So you know, instead of clicky orchestral harps, you move to something that's like more uh, smoothed over like a string instrument or something. Um, and also the tempo was brought down quite a bit uh, as compared to the original mm-hmm. MIDI. So both of those were sort of towards the end of trying to give it, trying to reduce its foregroundness enough such that it could withstand a map that might take people, you know, 40 or 50 minutes to get through. I don't remember how long that map is. Maybe it's not that long, but. Uh, there
0: has some hard fights on UV though.
1: Yeah, yeah. So probably lots of save loads. So probably, you know, it could take someone an hour to beat.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, I suppose with that, it brings me to the final question, which I ask everybody. I am kind of interested in your, to like, to hear what your answer is for this, because, you know, There's always the obvious couple of answers, but uh, I've been hearing some different ones lately, which is exciting. Um, What is your favorite monster in Doom and why?
1: Yeah, I heard this question in one of your other episodes. It it kind of invites contrarian answers. Yeah, I think the problem
0: is now people have listened to the other ones and they're like, well, I don't want to say this because like Benjo said this or whatever. And it's like, you know, it's got to be pure
1: say like SS zombie or something or...
0: <laughs> yeah exactly, just being difficult
1: yeah, uh, but I think the the earnest answer was probably revenant mm. um, it's the I mean I draw lots of cramped spaces pretty often, and revenants are one of the most maneuverable enemies in in such spaces, and also when I'm playing through any sort of Maybe more incidental, combat-driven Doom 2 stuff. Revenant is really like the the main enemy that makes the hairs stick up on your back when you're going through, and you know, you hear it starts screaming at you. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I mean, it, it's it's obvious utility in that the you know the homing missiles add a whole uh, layer of movement mechanics that are more sophisticated than your average you know dodge or projectile that's specifically aimed at you or hit scan. So they're a small form factor, big bombast, and then what they introduce in terms of player movement—it's one of my go-to enemies. Like if I'm looking at a space and I'm still ironing out, uh, you know, what specific enemies are going to go in a spot, you could be sure I'll be trying revenants at least once.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting because the, the way you put it is kind of uh, when when people make incidental stuff and maybe i don't know maybe even newer mappers and things where they they haven't quite worked out how to make combat as exciting or like as dynamic or whatever a revenant kind of on its own does the work for them in a way like because it can shoot either a homing projectile or a straight shooting one so it kind of does a lot of the work in making the combat interesting
1: and i guess that subtle like rng element is also fun
2: Uh
1: where it's like a Depending on your situation, sometimes a homing rocket can fuck you up pretty bad. Uh, but like, if you happen to just launch a normal one, you know, you get out a little bit easy out of a bad situation, maybe. Uh, and also the the damage variance, I love it. The you know, ten, 10, <laughs> 10 to, 80, to eighty. It's it adds so much just drama to like playthroughs of watching people you know endlessly complain about eighty damage revenant rockets and.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: you know, I'm, I'm also very interested in every time I get hit and I had 11 HP and it only did 10. Uh, yep. So it, it adds lots of, to, lots of drama to
0: the game. Uh, I can't remember I what the, the range is for Baron Bulls. What are they? Are they like 20 to I 64 think it's, uh, or
1: something? I think it tops out at 64. But yeah, the uh, Hell Knight Melee goes up to 80, I think.
0: Yeah, I couldn't remember the low end, but I was playing something the other day and I got hit by three bottom range, uh, Baron Fireballs in a row. Uh, it was crazy, and I managed to survive the encounter only because of that. But pe- people don't mention it enough. The low, the low. Yeah, end you gotta,
1: you gotta remember the good times. <laughs>
0: yeah, I am kind of surprised you said Revden. I I thought it would either be the arch file, not just because of you know for combat reasons, but Vile jumping, obviously a huge part of some of your like frog and toad stuff and like some of your other maps and then i sure. also thought maybe Cyber Demon because you mean you made the baby cyberdemons and and you love infighting in your maps and stuff too
1: yeah uh all good choices yeah. uh but when i'm when i'm making a map and i'm thinking about what's going to go here you know revenants pop up more often than those ones so three or four yeah for the, for the frequency alone i'll give them the gold medal <laughs> the rest of them can
0: share silver well, yeah, no, I'm happy. I'm actually happy to hear it. I was happy to hear The remnant because uh, I wasn't expecting it. All right. Uh, well, thanks for coming on. It was really interesting. You've obviously been, like, a big influence on on my mapping and stuff and uh, also, like, a big help in recent years in terms of, like, the various problems that you run into when you start messing with more esoteric stuff in the Doom engine. So, um, yeah, thanks for all that and, and thanks for being here.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Alright, well, I'll finish up here and then be back with another episode soon. Catch you later.